0: How to order the 2023 September 11th Planning and Environmental Commission meeting. First item on our agenda is PEC Item 3.1, which is a request for review of a prescriptive prescribed regulation amendment pursuant to Section 12-3-7 amendment, Vail Town Code, to amend Section 12- 6i yes housing h district to change the development review process and standards planner is greg roy applicant is the town of Vale. um also represented by dominic mariello and the mariello planning group so who is doing our presentation this
1: afternoon So I'm going to turn it over to the applicant. Um, As noted, we are looking at some changes to the housing zone district as far as the standards inside that um, language. Uh, As this meeting is not requesting a recommendation at this time, it is really an introduction. We did not provide any analysis of the criteria. Um, And we will turn it over to the applicant to kind of introduce the project as well as walk you through what is being proposed.
0: Great. How are you today
2: good good afternoon dominic Moriello here with the uh, moriela planning group and uh, i've been hired by the town and the Bay local housing authority um, to help them uh, write some uh, regulatory reforms uh, within the code um, and we've been working sort of side by side with the community development um, so that we're sort of working bringing this forward as a team um, and what you're going to see here today is kind of a first of probably a series of amendments that are going to occur we're looking at um, other sections of the code um, such as design di- design standards design guidelines uh, we've already even talked briefly and you'll see it at your next meeting we've talked about the retaining wall heights that you guys um, often see as a variation uh, or as a variance uh, when going through some of the housing projects Um, There's some other regulatory reforms that will probably be sort of started by the town council, um, but they'll be targeted more at staff process, things that aren't in the code, but it's really how, or they might be in the code, but they're more regulatory in terms of the the steps that you go through from the day you submit your application um, to coming out with an approval on the other side and what happens in that sort of process and how long does that take. And so we'll be coming back um, in the near future with some additional amendments. But what we're here to talk about today, uh, quite specifically, is is some revisions to the Housing Zone District. Uh, What was interesting is in the past couple of weeks, as planners, we've all gotten these email blasts about uh, regulatory reform, and this is a great example of one we just got last week. Uh, that talked about the federal government is actually has a funding program uh, with uh, millions of dollars available to local governments um, to, to try to pay for um, this kind of an effort. And what's interesting is if you look over here on, uh, on, the, uh, I guess be on the left side, is the first two things that they point out on the list of things that could qualify for this funding are uh, reducing barriers you know caused by outdated zoning, land use policies or regulations, and then inefficient in procedures. And so it's not just the town of Vail that's doing these things. You've already heard about things that are happening at the state level, but the feds are, are pushing this as well. So this is a, a pretty big effort, and it's because uh, a lot of the zoning codes that exist around the country are all sort of born out of um, What was the model land use code or the model zoning code that came out uh, like in the 50s and so if you go and read some of those recommended um you know zoning codes from back then you know you can you can see elements of it in just about every code that you read um it's sort of the basis of a lot of, of the zoning codes that you see today anyway i just thought that was interesting and i just wanted to throw that perspective in there in terms of you know what other people um are looking at doing.
0: Dominic, let me just do a little housekeeping. Just for the record, let's note that uh, commissioners Rediger and Jensen are absent from this meeting, will not be attending, and we do have commissioner Hagedorn here um, at this time. Thank um, you. So. Uh,
2: the town council has existing policies we talked about this last week when i gave you guys the update basically they passed a resolution in 2018 that talked about doing some of these uh reforms uh, breaking down barriers to achieving housing and addressing land use regulations and process and some of those other things and what we're trying to do is you know the town's wanting to treat uh, housing more like town infrastructure as a necessary thing that needs to be there. And then as part of that, recognizing that the private sector brings a lot to the table to be able to address housing and so partnerships with uh, the private sector. And, and so those are some of the policies that they put in place that said, hey, we want to recognize, we want to make it easier and more attractive for the private sector to get involved. Um, in this uh, addressing of the critical housing need, um, and then as you know, uh, in 2023 there was a new goal put in place to, uh, to double the supply of deep restricted homes um, to 2,100 homes in uh, in the town. Um, and then most recently, just last week, we went to the, the town council to talk to them about again all of these policies that we're talking about. Uh, addressing not just the housing zone district, but also including the housing zone district. And they basically expressed their uh, strong support for moving this effort through, getting your comments and recommendations, uh, and then bringing something to the town council, um, specifically on the housing zone district, but on all of these um, issues. As we talked last time, uh, one of the big uh, things that makes housing, could make housing more attractive to the private sector is, you know, removing regulatory uncertainty, you know, as a developer entering the process, and you, uh, you've probably heard uh, from some developers in the past about just the, the reluctance of uh, uh, becoming involved and the cost that's associated with bringing projects forward. And it's, it's no surprise that the town has basically had to sponsor and, sh- and shoulder Most of these housing developments that are going on right now in the Housing Zone District uh, in order to reduce the risk that uh, would be shouldered by the private sector. Um, And so, again, trying to amend the Housing Zone District to make it more attractive, not only for public investment, but also make it more uh, uh, effective uh, or more attractive to the the private sector. Um, and then the whole goal here being to try to obtain more resident um, housing um, in an efficient and more cost-effective way through um, the town's processes. Um, so, in order uh, to sort of meet that guideline, you know, the, some of the goals for the house, or updating the housing uh, district is to try to simplify and streamline the process, as we just discussed. Um, established development standards uh, to allow for use by right development like other uh, residential zone districts. Um, you know, in the HDMF, LDMF, low density multiple family, all the other residential zone districts, you have a set of standards. You come in if you meet those standards. Um, you go to DRB um, and you go through, you know, the staff review and, and the DRB review. The housing zone district is the only uh, residential one that doesn't have that sort of quick step from application because, and that's because there's all these discretionary standards that were put in place. Back in the day, they thought, let's create a lot of flexibility. Let's just let the planning commission come up with those. And so it's a debate every time you come in as to what the building height is going to be, what are the setbacks going to be, what's the minimum lot size, uh, those sorts of things. And so one of the things that we're trying to do here is to put some guardrails in there so that somebody who can meet those standards can go into that process and come out right on to DRB. Uh, Whereas if they can't, and they still need a variance or something, they'd still have to come back through the Planning Commission in order to to get uh, that review. So PEC's oversight would still be on land use issues like rezonings uh, that occur throughout the town, variances and subdivision applications. But in the Housing Zone District, the DRB would be the oversight on development, like the development plan, and then design-related issues, just like it is uh, in those other zone districts. So I'm going to go through a, kind of a quick summary of what all that redlined version of what I have uh, is. And then I have page by page, we can go through sort of section by section um, as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. Um, and talk about each one of those. Um, so we updated the purpose statement, really just making it very apparent what the purpose uh, tool was to achieve the critical need for housing and to create some flexibility. So we added some language in there that talks about that. Um, we moved up some of the conditional use permits. So in the code, you've got uses by right, which are ones you're allowed to do uh, without having to get a special approval by this body. Um, And so what we did was we took some of the ones that were conditional use permits today and we moved them up into the use by right category. And that included dwelling units. So, you know, you're allowed to have free market dwelling units in the housing zone district today, today with a conditional use permit, but it can't be for more than 30 percent of the GRFA. And that was done back in the day thinking that that 30 percent might be enough incentive for somebody in the private sector to come in and build housing. That may or may not be um, uh, enough incentive for somebody to do that on their own. Uh, I think the real goal of the Housing Zone District is probably more to achieve workforce housing um, and not focus so much on that. But you do have at least one project in the town, which is the Lions Ridge Project, that is allowed to have uh, 30 percent of its occupants be um, people who don't meet the definition of a qualified resident. basically free market type residents in there. I don't know that they have any of those, um, but leaving this in as an option would certainly continue to allow them to be conforming. Um, And then other things like childcare, parks and public buildings, those are things that are sort of a necessary things within the town, uh, but also things that we thought might be uh, better served as a use by right rather than a conditional use permit. They could also be listed as an accessory use. Um, if you thought that, like you didn't want somebody to just come in and build a childcare center in the housing zone district, um, I guess, and you wanted to make sure it was in combination with a, with a housing project, you could certainly kind of move that into the category of an accessory use. Still sort of a use by right, but it would be accessory to the primary use, which would be um, you know, employee housing um, project. And then all the other conditional use permits uh, for things like schools and other commercial uses would still be intact the way they are today. So that if you want to do a mixed use project that includes those, you'd still have to come in and ask for a conditional use permit, which would be reviewed by uh, this body. so now, that in the case of the Housing Zone District, if you're building within the standards that get established by the Town Council in the Zone District, the DRB would be the review authority and there wouldn't be a, a Planning Commission review for projects. And I know that a lot of people probably sitting in this position up here are thinking, well, sort of, you know, taking something away from us that we used to do, but it's really about trying to address the process. Um, and trying to uh, have it go efficiently through the project uh, process, like you would in a standard residential zone district. Um, so, again, as I pointed out, all the other zone residential zone districts, actually including the, uh, the public accommodation zone district, which you could argue is more of a commercial district, um, you know, you go straight to uh, the DRV. So, we're just kind of mirroring that with these amendments. Um, the DRB would still be able to vary from the 20-foot setback requirement uh, using the exact same criteria that the Planning Commission used to use to evaluate that. And it's um, a little bit similar to the PA zone district where the DRB also has that authority to use that criteria to allow some changes in mostly for underground uh, improvements uh, like parking garages and those sorts of things. Um, so it's not totally out of character uh, in the zoning code.
0: site coverage is- Can I just go back to that? I I know you're in your presentation, just on that section B where PEC kind of gives up that, that, and it kicks over to DRB. The theory is, I, I mean, one of the primary missions of DRB or PEC that has separated it from DRB was trying to keep that massing and site coverage separated from the DRB package where we kind of dealt with that here so that they had kind of a, I think a shorter list within their scope so that, can you just explain the theory of why that, you know, that massing has been removed? I mean, I already see a couple sections lower, how we're we're significantly changing the site coverage rules within this package, so I, I guess, that massing and, and the size of these projects has always been kind of a planning issue and why we would all of a sudden release that to DRB. Is it, is it because we feel it's in conjunction with the overall design and that's why we need to move that massing into the DRB uh, scope rather than the PC? So it's really,
2: I mean, there are other do- districts, for instance, they're still in, in Lions Head and in the CC1 zone district you still maintain that uh, part of the process where, um, where you evaluate sort of the massing and the development. Um, but it's always been the role of the zoning. The zoning sets the standards. So really what has happened is the town council has said, if you meet these standards, that's, that's appropriate. And then the, the DRB and staff evaluate that as part of the, the project. So it's not uncommon. For instance, there's a new development uh, that's been approved um, in uh, sort of a, uh, what do you call that neighborhood? The Glen Lyon neighborhood. Um, that's, a, I think, an HDMF project. It's a good example of one that the, the design review board looks at all of that. They basically look to staff and say, staff, did it, does it meet the setbacks? And the staff says, yes. Or, um, you know, do, does it meet the site coverage? As long as it's within those rules, it's really not a debatable issue. Um, And so I think what's happening here is we're saying, just like in those other zone districts, the town council says that it's appropriate that if you're fitting in this box bulk and mass-wise, that we're okay with letting that project be just a design review approval. Now, on the varying from setbacks, they would be applying the same criteria that you had to apply to that. So it is adding a little bit of additional burden, I would say, on the DRB that they have to look at that, uh, those criteria and make sure that, that they meet those. And it's, as I mentioned, in the PA Zone District, they do that. It's a little bit different uh, context, but they do that for some of the setbacks uh, in there already. Um, so it, it's not entirely outside of the, the norm. As I mentioned here, we're proposing to increase the site coverage. So today, the site coverage is 50% um, in the Housing Zone District. I think a lot of the projects have, have come in um, a little bit over that, and we're, we're basically saying let's recognize that in the housing zone district we're going to, we're trying to put as much density in there as possible, we're trying to fit, uh, trying to address the housing need, and so we're allowing for that 75 percent to allow a little bit uh, more. You you may or may not think 75 percent is the right number. and. You can certainly, you know, when we get to the meeting at the next at the next meeting, you know. Um, well, it's you know, a little bit
0: of a trigger. effect. you've you've increased the side coverage by twenty five percent, but and then in reality, what you're doing is this twenty foot setback variance is now kicking over to DRB in essence. And if you, uh, so it's it feels like a one or the other. You if you're going to take that 75%, you better be within your setbacks. Um, and I'd hope that DRB would identify that it, it, um, because this this swelling and this massing, which has always been an important part of what we discussed, you know, going back to the Evergreen project where ultimately it got approved because it found a way to get within yeah. most of its boundaries. Yeah. Um, and I, I, so I'm trying to, I, I just don't want us to create bear traps down the road by removing this level of scrutiny for PEC and and dumping it into the design review, it, it seemed like it was a very clean, delineated line before. Now it's, it's kind of a little bit... And I, I understand the whole theory and the concept. I'm not... I'm behind it. I'm behind trying to find the efficiencies in the process, but I do have concerns with specifically the massing the size the setbacks the site coverage being kind of removed from PEC because i think we've done a fairly good job if you fit in your box you observe the rules buy right we're going to give it to you there was a lot of pushback on on several projects but it's like ultimately we got to approve it because they hit all the standards
2: right and i think that that's what we're trying to say I, i would argue that the lines are very blurry today um, if you're an applicant and you're coming through this process, you're talking a lot about a lot of stuff that's uh, more on the design side of things, um, and you're getting into those areas. Um, and then so the, the division between what's Planning Commission and the DRB do get very blurred, I think, today. And I think here what we're saying is we're creating a little bit more of a structured line. And granted, it's people just like you that are volunteers sitting on the, plan- on the DRB, that are, have to look at that same criteria for setback. So if somebody comes in and they meet the 20-foot setback, uh, then there's really no debate, right? There's their guardrail. If they're asking for some kind of a deviation from that, then obviously they have to apply that criteria. And it's not that one body is better than the other at doing that, it's just sort of saying, let's, let's, let's let them do that and, and take on that criteria and make this, the process that much, uh, you know that much quicker. And then this falls in line then also with the next item, which is the minimum landscape area. We've uh, modified that from today. It's at 30 percent, and we've decreased that to 25 percent. And really just to kind of recognize, A, the site coverage issue, the amount of parking that you need, and then the need to to create flexibility and allow for sort of a greater greater, uh, footprint for housing. The ones on on this slide are basically new standards. So these are all the standards that, that the Planning Commission had discretion to set. And so what we're trying to do here is say, let's let somebody be able to come into the process and not have it be discretionary. Have some, you know, be able to predict through the process that I know if I meet these standards that I'm likely to get approval. Obviously, there's other design review issues that need to be addressed. But so minimum lot size was always set. 10,000 square feet is your standard residential minimum lot size requirement. Um, so that's what we proposed there. Building height is one that I'm sure is going to cause some discussion in um, um, you know, establishing a height at 70 feet with a sloping roof at 85 feet. Um, again, something that would be allowed to be reviewed by, by the design review board through the process. That reflects a lot of the, what you've seen recently on these housing projects that have come through, um, but we can certainly have a discussion about you know what's the appropriate number there, and, and you can obviously um, express your concerns and, and comments there. Um, on density, you know, usually people come in with density. I don't think that there's been any great mathematical equation that determined what's the appropriate density for a piece of property. It has something to do with Um, You know, site coverage and building height has a lot to do with parking uh, to some degree. Landscape area um, affects all of that. Um, So what we're basically saying here is just like in Lion's Head, we're basically saying uh, there is no limit on density, that as long as it fits in the box that we're creating, this new box we're creating, that whether there's four units in there or there's seven, is really a you know a decision um, by the applicant um, to come in and, and propose something that works. Same thing would be true for GRFA. So no limit on GRFA, allowing that again to just be filling the box, um, being able to maximize and have the freedom to know that um, I can have um, as much GRFA um, as can fit in the box. Basically. So just
0: question maybe i'm jumping ahead who is what's the definition of the administrator is that a town staff a building department who
1: the administrator the administrator is um community development director is typically designated staff at that time so staff will be making so those determinations
0: it's it's town hall it's, it's a standing plan. department okay. staff right okay
2: and that comes into play on the on the next slide which is uh um, the mobility and parking plan, and this one's, you know, probably one of the more um, controversial changes that we're proposing here. In that, um, what we're proposing in this section is to just have a standard of one parking space per unit uh, on the property, and how that gets divided up between—that's just how you come up with the the number of parking spaces. It's not necessarily a parking space assigned to a unit. And then within that, uh, how many guest parking spaces do you have? But that's where you come up with the math on the number of total parking spaces. If one, if somebody was proposing to do something less than one parking space per unit, then the mobility plan would kick in. Um, and then that would be something that we're proposing right now, is that that's something that the, the, the administrator would review and approve as part of the project.
3: Um, so no mobility plan would be required if there was at least one parking space per unit? Correct. And, you
2: know, I think the theory behind this is know people will, you know, debate whether one site's more appropriate to not have, park, have, have more parking or less parking, but we kind of looked at it as the town is pretty, pretty, has a pretty good mobility plan all by itself you know so almost any place that you're going to do housing within the community you have access to transit you have you know access to obviously bike bike access pedestrian access um, and that not everybody needs to have a car and i know people have strong opinions about that but when you're a person looking for a place to live and you have a car and you want to have it and you're going to go to a complex that doesn't have enough parking for you to have that car then you're obviously not going to live in this complex right so i think that it's hard for me you know i'm in my 50s i can't imagine living around here maybe without a car but there are a lot of people who in this world who come and and don't necessarily want to have a car don't need to have a car and i think that you know allowing that opportunity to occur on some projects um, uh, i think is important Um, and if there's a place that you can do it in this county it's right here in vale uh, i think you can live in Vail and not have a car um, would i want to do that maybe not but you know if i'm a person from argentina that's here on a visa uh, you know working for the winter i'm probably not bringing a car with me um, so i think we just have to recognize that in some of these complexes not everybody's going to be served if they have their own goals about you know how they're going to going to park.
0: Can I just ask a quick kind of um, over at these recommendations within this package were developed between staff and Dominic or where, where do these numbers and these um, suggestions come from? The Housing Authority?
1: So I believe the that they were kind of Worked on with the local housing authority and Dominic and staff which is helping with the review of those numbers as well so
2: We brought those to staff. We've met we've discussed all of these and uh, I think what you see here today is a recommendation that comes out of both Departments as a as a recommendation It's not just uh, it's not just my independent recommendations it's been through another body and it's been through Along with Are you guys
0: looking for suggestions From this Commission on these specific numbers and And proposals
1: yeah, yep, yeah, we're looking for the PC's review to kind of give us a uh, what what your comfort level is the kind of going back to the earlier part of the presentation is the PEC, as you mentioned, looks at bulk massing and those standards which are previously or currently set by the PEC during this review process. As we're looking at these changes in the housing zone district, what's the height, site coverage, density, all those things that are set by PEC today. Can't Is there a good number that um, this board is comfortable with setting as a firm, here's what's acceptable in the situation for house, any housing development going forward, that we don't need to review it um, as a development plan, typical to the other housing zone districts that have those set numbers that go straight to DRB. Is there something that, as we have, that we could put for the housing zone district that would have that same um, effect? So, you know, rather than. Um, you know as as you're looking at these please keep that in mind we are looking for that feedback is that height appropriate is the site coverage appropriate is this something that we can cement in town code so that it can be reviewed at the drb level similar to other residential zone districts that you're comfortable with
0: all right thanks i'm not trying to derail the presentation this is good looking for what you guys are looking for us and we'll save it for comments i guess
2: yeah totally appreciate that um so then one of the other changes is because we're Um, going directly to the DRB, the development plan. When you go to DRB with a project, you have a development plan. It's a site plan for the project. And so basically, we're getting rid of the development plan review that's uh, normally required from Planning Commission, and that becomes part of uh, just your typical DRB application. Again, the policy makers are going to say, here's what we set the standards at. And then as long as you're meeting that, that, those are all acceptable um, as part of a development plan. So that's what I have for a, a summary. And then I have um, each one uh, in detail. And we can go page by page and talk about this and maybe even have some discussion uh, around it. Um, and just so you know, we, we realize that the standards that we put out there are, are aggressive standards that we think they are appropriate. Uh, but we also think they're aggressive because, because of really the need to be able to build housing on the remaining parcels that we have left in a, in a way that serves the maximum amount of, of, of uh, people in the community that need housing. So on the purpose statement, uh, we added in a statement about having flexibility uh, with the development standards, uh, recognizing that those standards were no longer being prescribed by the Planning Commission. We made some changes there and that that it was recognizing that this was to provide for the critical need of housing to serve local citizens and business there was nothing dramatically different there um, but it was a a, a nuance that uh, that we wanted to add this just shows again those um, permitted uses moving up into uh, those conditional uses moving up into the permitted use category and so the ones that are that are dark Font and uh, or bolded and underlined are the ones that came out of um, out of the conditional use section and, and moved up.
4: Dominic, what do you mean by D two? Dwelling units are only created in conjunction with employee housing.
2: So that's ex- the existing language that's in the code today. Uh, when you're looking at it as a conditional use permit, so that only uh, so those dwelling units can only be done when you're doing doing them as part of an overall housing project that includes deed-restricted units. So you got to have the 70% uh, employee housing before you can do the 30% um, the 30% uh, you know free-market units. Um, so it, you couldn't just do dwelling units as a standalone u- use without it being in conjunction with uh, an employee housing project. That language maybe is not ideal, but we were just using the exact same language.
5: And the 30% is the same as the previous iteration it's of the code. The and the same. idea is they're just using market rate housing in theory to subsidize deed restricted. Right. right. And we haven't
2: seen that really happen except right. in the one complex. So I don't know how important that is, but it's something that we should discuss. I know George has even questioned, you know, whether we should even have that 30% anymore. Should we just have it be 100% of workforce housing and, and get rid
5: of the 30% provision? Which was in, the complex that used some of the market rate? Uh, you, which, which which was the complex that used some of the Lyons market Ridge
2: rate? is the one. I think it's the only one. Um,
1: Blue Heights did have a portion of that in there as well. Okay. And it was, it's currently in the code, too, that... Um, it should be used only for the purpose of subsidizing the employee housing units. So we could maintain that language if we want to keep this in there. Um, we could also be added to the accessory use as well as permitted, yeah. since it is secondary to the employee housing units. Yeah. So there's a little bit of you know where we could move this section or this piece as well.
2: Yeah, All of those that we moved up um, from conditional use permits, I think you could move it into the accessory use category because yeah. then that would make it clear that it was subservient to the primary use uh, on the project. And maybe and it, that it seems
5: appropriate for something like childcare facilities. That's clearly not a primary yeah, yeah, yeah. use. And in, in essence, no one's really going to build a childcare facility given the economics. You know, as a primary use, regardless. So, right. yeah. and
2: actually, maybe what we you know, one of the changes could be is that it, you only have the only permitted use is employee housing, and all those other ones, even A and B. Uh, which, you know, bicycle and pedestrian paths, all of those become accessory uses. Um, It might make it really much more clear that you're not just building a child care center. You're not rezoning the property to housing and with the intent of only building a child care facility. Because the way it's written right here, the way we've proposed it, it, you could do that. Right. Uh, Maybe that's not what we really intended to do. I I
4: think, think, excuse me, I think your D2 in, a, in omitting all the existing language uh, created in conjunction with employee housing to subsidize employee housing, compatible with, uh, I think you're losing a lot of the intent by just making that rather vague statement in number two. Yeah. Um, I I'll get to my comments, but I I agree with your accessory route. Yeah. That we're losing the
5: intent. It's cleaner because it shows your sole primary use is yeah. de-districted housing
2: yeah i think it works and i you know i won't speak for uh, planning staff but i think that it makes sense from uh, sort of how the zoning code is used um,
1: that you could do that yeah the only thing i would say on that is you know maybe bicycle pedestrian paths um something similar to that maybe will be maintained in the permitted uses i'm just thinking if we have a vacant housing site that has some sort of adjacent to the right-of-way we would want to be able to put a path through there if That's it true. makes sense um, and if there's no other use on the site and it's only accessory we wouldn't be able to do that typically we do all that in the right-of-way but um, as I think about pedestrian paths you know going through that interconnection maybe something like that could ma- be maintained as a permitted use
2: yeah I guess by that same <laughs> token you might have a public piece of property that has a public building on it but then you want to do you want to zone it to housing zone district to allow a a chunk of it to be developed as housing. So maybe you do want to allow the public buildings. I don't think there's a a lot of risk in that there's a whole bunch of people that want to build parks and public buildings. So I I think you'd be safe keeping that in there as well. Right, but But certainly
1: the dwelling units and child care center could be moved to accessory.
2: Yeah, I think that could really work. Um, This is just to show that uh, The conditional use, and I I see what you're saying now too. I see three and four are missing from there. That might just be a scrivener's error on my behalf. We probably should have brought that B, uh, three and four up into there. Um, That might have just been, again, like a scrivener's error on that. But all this is basically showing is all the things we were taking out of the conditional use permit section and moving it uh, into the permitted. Accessory uses, the only change we were making was this hangover of minor arcades. I guess back in the 70s or the 80s, arcades were the big rage. And um, you know they had major and minor arcades. Uh, we don't really see too many arcades being built. Um, so anyway, that's why we were taking that one out of there. It was more a pet peeve of mine every time I see it in the code, I'm always like, what are we, what are we talking about here?
5: It's probably showing my generation, but I thought I was talking about a building arcade, like a building feature, not an actual I know, arcade. Right? <laughs> if you read the definition,
2: it's definitely like a coin-operated, you know, pinball parlor. Um, setbacks, so this section, the only thing that was changing there was who was the, the, the body that was reviewing a variation from the setbacks requirements, keeping all the same... Uh, standards in place, um, but just having that be um, uh, be reviewed by the design review board.
3: Um, I'd like to go back to setbacks and talk about that for a second. Um, so, uh, this is a little bit confusing to me because it, it moves the responsibility when it uses the, the term vary in, in different capacities, right? Like an, a variance is a Process, as I understand it, in C, right? But maybe just a departure from the recommendation is what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah. In B, we right? do. We we kind of like splitting hairs a little bit, where it's not quite a variance. We're calling it a variation, and there's a difference. Maybe deviation is the better word. Deviation
3: or divergence right. from the recommendation. Yeah. Um, also, I, I think that that 20 feet should be smaller. I think it should be. I don't. It, I guess it would be helpful to look at our other projects. That like, are there housing projects, and understand what that is, because it seems like what we actually produce when we produce a, a housing development, it, it's not a 20 foot
1: setback, right? It's so we we currently. I mean, when we're thinking about projects, 20 feet from the zone perimeter, zone district perimeter, it's kind of the unique thing with the housing zone district. So you think of. Um, residents at Mainvale right across the street on that west lot line there was really no setback at all because it was right next to Middle Creek and so it doesn't have that 20 foot so it's a little more lenient than we currently have for some of these and if you compare the 20 foot to some of the other districts LDMF HDMF I think it falls right in line Um, so 20 feet I don't know if you're looking at making that total smaller is that kind of your comment yeah okay so that's a suggestion yep
2: you could, like, for instance, a lot of people think about the idea of uh, have it match. If you have a residential piece of property that's next door, have it match their setback. So if it's their side setback and it's only 15 feet, then you only need to be 15 feet. Um, no. That
3: was going to be my that was going to be my comment for C is that it says uh, you know a variance is required to the 20 foot setback on properties adjacent to you know the extremely low density residential but those setbacks are 20 feet in the front 15 in the rear and 15 on the sides so why wouldn't you just make it match that at I least think, right I think at the time
2: if, they were thinking is that you're probably building a building that's to, that's bigger and taller than than 35 feet or 33 feet so that because you're having a taller building you need more but it's a good point i mean you, you, you certainly could do that What I like about allowing, still allowing there to be some discussion is that, let's say that the piece of property is next to an open space parcel that's never going to have a building on it, right? So do you need to maintain a 20-foot setback from something that's already going to be open? So I like the idea of being able to ask, in case now you ask the Planning Commissioner or ask the DRB, is to say, hey, I'm adjacent to this open space. There's no reason to really restrict me. I can be five feet. You know, or whatever the number is. Um, so, just allowing the ultimate amount of flexibility by being able to ask for it. But if, but if you want to create a standard that's other than the twenty feet, so to allow that, we can, we can come up with some language uh, to deal with that. But that, that's an example uh, in my mind of one where you'd probably want to go almost to zero, right?
3: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that specifically for C, it should at least just match what HR, single family, residential, residential, primary I just, sector.
0: I, I, I will beg to differ. When you're talking about a roof line potentially at 85 feet as opposed to a residential roof line at, like Dominic said, if you're going to have a building that's within that 20-foot setback and you're going vertical with it. it You have to have that airspace just for shading and everything else. It's a completely different thing when you're looking at residential space and you have that setback.
3: But wouldn't that come into play when we do a a zoning consideration?
1: Typically, we wouldn't have site plans and building forms at rezoning. You'd be looking at the lot and kind of its surrounding neighborhood. So you wouldn't know kind of what the height is. The idea is when we set these standards, you'd be able to know what the maximum would be the setbacks and everything when you're looking at rezoning a property but you wouldn't know the specific development idea
3: but uh, so if it's it does the five feet make a big difference if it's 15 instead of 20 next to a hillside residential that's a bad example but
0: I think it makes a big difference but we can save that for comments and just yeah
2: Site coverage here again is the language uh, today that has it at uh, 55%. I think I might have had another error in there. I think I said 50, Uh, but it's 55% today and we were going to 75 of total site area. And then it says at the discretion of the Planning and Environmental Commission, site coverage may be increased if 75% of the required parking spaces are underground or enclosed, thus reducing the impacts of surface paving. Um, and we were sort of taking all of that um, language out of there and just going sort of with the straight standard. Um, so that's why you see a lot of that language struck there. And, it, and it, again, we're asking for 20% more than exists today. And I think that that's in recognition of, of what a lot of these projects um, tend to come in at. Maybe, maybe if, uh, if staff knows offhand what some of these other projects are, could give you.
1: I think we've seen, I don't know off the top of my head what the percentage is, but I don't think we've seen anything really bumping up to that 55 or more where they needed to go to get that reduction or the increase up to 75%. Um, As we think about this number too, it kind of makes sense to bring in that that landscaping number that's being proposed to go from 30 to 25%. So if you have a landscaping uh, minimum at 25% of your lot and we're increasing site coverage up to 75, you're still going to have to have room for parking areas drive aisles sidewalks anything like that so you're really not going to be able to see 75 percent with that minimum landscaping as well as the necessary kind of parking area in there so um, when we look at that number trying to picture what 75 percent is on a lot when we're talking about just building as well
2: yeah i mean to do that you would really have to do all of your parking would have to be structured right and then some really because you still have driveway
5: coming in right do you not know what Timber Ridge is off the top of your head for coverage?
1: Timber Ridge, I believe, is closer to 37, I want to guess. It's a pretty decent-sized lot in general we're thinking about it and with all the, the drive aisles and parking that's in there because we're really just looking at the building footprints. And if we're thinking about residents at Mainville as well, I think they were down in the 30 to 40 range percentage as well.
2: And I think that's a little bit of a product of how they're situated, the landform that they are. They have a lot of steep, a lot of steep areas that you're not going to be able to really develop them.
6: So how did you come up with the 75% site area?
2: Really, it was just trying to bump that up uh, to allow more flexibility. Um, it may, in fact, you know, there might be a number less than that that's more appropriate but it wasn't really based on too much science.
5: Can you just give me a refresher on what site coverage includes and does not include?
1: Sure, so site coverage is the building footprint is is the majority of it. Mm -hmm. The only thing that adds to site coverage is if you have an eave on that building that extends more than four feet. So we always say you get the first four feet free and then we charge you after that.
5: But it's not impervious. It's,
1: it's, it's not pervious services, it's not okay. parking, it's nothing like that. It's just the building footprint and any part of that eve that extends beyond yeah. four feet.
2: And like a Port share, like if you look at the Merritt Residence End, most of that Port share counts as site coverage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, you can think about it. <laughs> and then as we talked about taking the uh, the 30% uh, on landscape area and dropping that down to 25, and This is probably the more critical um, of the two in terms of making a change and allowing for some flexibility. I think that this is an area where you've seen other site plans where it's tough to meet the uh the 30%. We took the second sentence out of there. There's sort of like um, you know, forty percent of the or sixty percent of the zone districts have this um thing that talks about the size of the landscape area to be able to qualify and have and then the other 40 percent don't have that um, and it's a really cumbersome way to calculate landscape area because then you're looking at every little island so your desire to create a little landscape island in the in a drive aisle you may not be able to do it because it, you won't want to do it because it's not going to count towards your landscape area so you're sort of having a design impact On how somebody lays out their site and so um, in the most recent zone districts like lion's head which is 20 20 years old um, you know people have gotten rid of that standard and so i think we were all kind of in agreement that it's a hangover from something that we probably don't need to uh, need to control
4: but i remember at the wall street building we had a pec hearing on the fact that they were proposing a two foot by Ten foot piece of landscaping, and that was the 20 feet that they needed to meet their requirement because they didn't have it elsewhere on the site by building out too much of the site so I think we're we're going in circles here
2: yeah, I would say almost every larger development project I've worked on has had a, to either get a variation from that, like uh, the holiday the Highline uh, property was an example of one where you had to get a variation from that that sentence. Um, Lion's Head I don't think has that, doesn't have that requirement, so you could do the two feet by 10 foot piece. And um, to me, I think it actually discourages a good design because um, you might want to break up a parking lot with some landscape area. And if it's not um, at least 15 feet, um, you know, you can't count it. And it, doesn't, it doesn't seem practical to me in sort of this day and age. But that's up for you guys to... To think about, like I said, it's almost 50-50, The zone districts that require it and the zone districts that don't require it. But again, these are the, this is the lot area and site dimension. This is one that the planning commission is required to set. It's kind of a weird thing to set because somebody comes to you with an application. I don't know that the planning commission has ever said, "You need to go get more land, and we're not going to allow this to happen." Um, Someone might think that 10,000 square feet seems low, but you know there could be some smaller lots in the town that somebody wants to zone, um, you know, to housing zone district, and if they want to build a small project uh, in the housing zone district, why not? Uh, as long as they meet all the standards, um, and so we've just set that uh, at uh, 10,000 uh, square feet as a minimum. Uh, I had originally proposed it before we met with staff to just say there wasn't a minimum, that you could have any size lot um, in the housing zone district, but I think staff felt like this was keeping consistency with all of the other residential districts.
3: Can we go back, just because this is is a question I have to ask. So if if we remove the minimum lot size, right, and rezone a small parcel to a housing district, theoretically somebody could build an 85-foot-tall building. Well, let's get to the how, let's get to the whole thing in just a second. <laughs> <laughs> just yes. Just trying to understand, like, why do we? I just want to understand why we need that minimum.
1: Minimum lot size.
3: Minimum lot size. I, I just, what are, what are we preventing from happening by having that minimum lot size? I like, think
1: what, the, What's
3: the What's the big scary thing at the end of this if we don't if we don't have a minimum lot size? What could happen?
1: I, th- I think the point of the minimum lot size is make sure we have a feasibly buildable lot So we're going to have something that's of substance being built on there. I think when you look at kind of what our other zone district minimums are, it's 15,000 square feet to subdivide. So when we're thinking about the minimum in the housing zone district, we also look at this for subdividing parcels. So rather than having, you know one lot, four lots of 2,500 square feet, we have one of 10,000 that has 40 units on it. So it's kind of more of just the buildability of it as well as how it's parceled out. Do we really wanna have a bunch of really small lots or just one lot that has a condo on it kind of with individual units inside there? Because it also gets to our development lot standards. So if you have a 2,500 square foot lot, then you have 20 foot setbacks on either side that may be varied or may not. 10,000 seems much more buildable.
2: It also comes it's more of a uh, an idea that like if you were out and you had vacant parcels throughout your town and, and somebody look was looking to pick a zone district and, and zone their rezone their piece of property you know how many lots could you get in there right you know that kind of determines uh, by having a minimum lot size it makes sure that all the home all the lots like in a single family type subdivision are you know sort of the same size and it's a good point then you you know if you didn't have a minimum lot size in theory somebody could could zone some property, housing, and then come in and propose to build 1,000 square foot lots, right, um, and have a plethora of them. So,
0: I think yeah, it, how do you deal with setback and everything? I mean, it you just wouldn't be able to. It's a domino do it. effect. I mean, yeah, the 10,000 square feet, but then all of a sudden you get into your setback, your site coverage, your landscaping. There's that that footprint closes down so quickly after 10,000. Having dealt with this in midterm. Which has a five-foot setback and it, it just closes down way too quickly on you and and the feasibility of the project I like the 10,000 square foot minimum because yes it does encourage someone maybe picking up a few lots creating a better project rather than these postage stamp opportunities and I I'm not sure we're gonna start zoning you know the tiny homes here so I, I, I do agree with this minimum
3: 10,000 square feet is, like, almost a quarter of an acre, right? Most of our most of our residential lots are smaller than that, right? Particularly in Westvale. Right? I would say,
2: ten, I think most lots are probably bigger. I would say that looking at what you guys were doing in the Westvale thing, I would say you maybe have 20% or 15% of lots that are less than 10,000 square feet. Yeah, in the master okay. plan that we
0: were dealing with, we only had a few that were ringing in at, like, yeah. 62 okay. to 7,000 and they were these old-school, like Geneva, or, or you know, these little old-school kind of weird-shaped lots, and I just, yeah. I, I that's,
3: why, that's why this is kind of sticking with me, though, is because where we have those small lots, that's the last of our residential housing, right? Is there a connection with that?
1: That's because they haven't been able to redevelop due to a non-conforming lot size or, or unit numbers. So it's less that it's a desirable building situation, more of just a factor of the zoning and how that affects those small lots.
2: Okay. And hopefully the Westvale zoning, once it gets adopted, if it ever gets adopted, um, will help, help cure some of that. And somebody could still come in and ask for a variance from that. So if there was a lot and somebody could demonstrate that, hey, this is a 9,500 square foot lot and it seems appropriate. They could come to the Planning Commission and ask for variance from that requirement. So it's still that door is still open. And um, I think we've seen uh, minimum lot size variances occasionally throughout the town. Um, I remember one on, on Gore Creek, West Gore Creek Drive, you know, 25 years ago. But, um,
3: I th- so but when you started this conversation, you said that you didn't think that you should have a minimum lot size.
2: I did. I, I mean, that's Why? where I was at. What are you going mean, to do
3: with that no minimum lot size?
2: It does bring up a good point though in that, okay, let's say that I come in and I want to rezone my 25,000 square foot lot to housing, and I want to divide it up into like these little 2,000 square foot lots, they'd literally be allowed to do that, it might not be all that appropriate. I, I doubt they'd be able to do it and still meet setbacks and some of the other requirements, but to me it's not that important, but I get the, I get the philosophy behind having it.
3: All right, I'll let it go. <laughs>
2: So heights, heights, a big one, um, obviously what we did here is we just took, uh, we took some language, uh, similar to what you have in some of the other, um, zone districts. We added, uh, a variation provision here to allow there to be even more height if it was necessary, but we kinda went for sort of what we thought would be the maximum, you know, the 70 feet, um, uh, for a flat roof and 85 feet. I've also thought about, okay, like I'm going to rezone some small lot in a residential neighborhood. Um, Do I really want, you know, do I really want that to be 85 feet in height? And so I can see the concern with doing that, you know, on the lots that are really obvious down here along the frontage road that that you've been doing with Timber Ridge and, um, you know, West um, Middle Creek. You know it makes sense to allow that kind of a building height but one of the thoughts I had was um, that that be a determination that you might make at zoning and it would it would be more it would be a lot different than what you do today and it would be a departure from how the Town Council acts today but you could literally have a paragraph here that says that that the Town Council when reviewing a rezoning application can further restrict uh, may have the ability to further restrict the uh, the height, and I think there's a way to do that so that it doesn't get lost and it gets reflected on the zoning map. Uh, it's very different. It's very similar to um, zoning that I used to work on 20 years ago in in Florida, where as they rezoned property, the town council could or the city council could put a density restriction on it. So as they were rezoning a property, they thought that the R1 zoning was appropriate. They would do like an R zone eight, and that meant that you could have eight dwelling units per acre, and there might be an R1 12. Um, and so that's kind of where I came up with the philosophy, but here I thought it'd be the appropriate time to do that at town councils, that somebody would come into town council and say, I wanna rezone this property, and they would, the town council would be like, I don't think this is appropriate for housing because I don't think it's appropriate for 85 feet in height. It would allow them to, if they chose to, put a further restriction on the building height. Um, It's something I was thinking about how you might react to to these numbers. It may be a way uh, to get around that and really have that discussion occur when they zone the property, um, and uh, rather than um, you know zoning every piece of property to allow for 85 feet height. Just a thought I had.
6: So the town council versus. DRB.
2: that's right so do it at the, do it at the point when you're making the decision to zone a piece of property you're saying that it's compatible it meets the it meets your goals of your comprehensive plan it's appropriate for this piece of property and i think that that to me is an appropriate time when you might say um, we think it's all appropriate but we think it ought to be 50 feet you know um, something to think about it's not really been done that way in the town in the past I think it's legal to do it um, it, depending on how you write it into the code.
3: I like the specificity of if it's 85 or 70 or whatever. You make the decision it's zoning, you can go for it, make it fit in the box. Um,
5: I guess the only problem there is if you are trying to drive the rezoning of land to housing district, it might preclude rezoning of future land to housing if you don't have a way to Neck that down if it is in a neighborhood where that's not in character. Yeah. So, I guess that's part of what the town's goals are with that.
2: Yeah. If you had a parcel that was surrounded on both sides by like buildings that were 35 feet in height, and mm-hmm. then there's this one left parcel in there, what would that look like at 85 feet? Right. It might be more appropriate to, you know, it might be appropriate to be a little bit bigger, but maybe not quite that drastic. So that that was my thinking. Yeah, I, I just
5: agree that it might be having to be hard set might restrict the rezoning of parcels in the future to housing because yeah. of
2: that. And the way I was thinking about it is if the town council didn't set a more restrictive limit, it would just be it would default to the 85 feet, 70 feet. So they I would like have, that. Yeah, it, they would have to make a special sort of, OK, we're going to do this, but. 75
3: to 85 feet, unless otherwise specified. I guess in the RFP or something when would that happen?
1: We'd have to get a specific language from our legal team on how we could do that. So certainly, a recommendation we would run by them.
3: Yeah. Because one of the things that I kind of like about you know height is sometimes scary, Um, but but for me it's not. I mean, I think that if you know. We often talk about this wall of development along the frontage road, and I think that's a great place for it because it's right on the valley floor. It's super low, right? That that's where our height should be, and also creates like a sound buffer to everything behind it, um, which is important. And you kind of like are selecting for that, you know, three or three to five over one construction type where you're getting the height of the building, but you're not wasting space, valuable space on surface parking, right? That's, that's the incentive of allowing the larger height, right? Is you can, you can get more units in there with the, that's what we're going for, right? Big buildings. I'm for it. I think that's what we need.
2: If I continue going, you guys can ponder that. Again, here, density, no limitation on the number of dwelling units per acre um, permitted. This is a direct quote from what we just did in Lion's Head, where we took away the number of units, and the argument there was whether I have 7 or 10 in the same space, um, you know, why would you want to discourage somebody from from creating more employee housing units than less, as long as they meet your minimum housing standards, right in terms of size.
3: what, is our, we, what are our minimum unit sizes? Is it still 400 and something?
1: Oh, uh, what what you're referring to is commercial linkage or, or residential link or resi- do we have a unit
3: size for a residential unit?
2: I believe we, that like a type three uh, is a minimum of 300
1: square feet for our commercial linkage. I think it's 438 square feet for one right. employee potentially might be the number um, and then it kind of goes up for a number of bedrooms and square footage for depending how many employees you're counting towards it. Um, as a minimum unit size in general. I think it might be up to the building because I don't think we have anything in zoning that requires a certain minimum size unit. It's just how many employees count towards a certain unit when you're talking about inclusionary zoning or commercial linkage.
4: Now based on how it's written here, there is no size limit.
1: Right. So there, this would be talking about kind of like the max number of units allowed on a site. So it wouldn't have any right. max number. It would also isn't setting a minimum limit of unit size either. Yeah. The,
2: the employee housing chapter, chapter thirteen, in the zoning has standards in there in terms of what are the minimum size uh, allowances in the different uh, types of, whether it's a type one or a type three or or whatever. And I'm pretty sure that a type three, for instance, which is one that can be rented or owned and is pretty much um, the most flexible in terms it's allowed in like commercial districts and residential districts, it's between 300 and and 1,200 square feet is the, the size limitation for that. It probably does bring up a good point that we probably should look at that chapter too and make sure that uh, the minimums that we have in there are still think are appropriate.
3: What type of EHU goes in an H district?
2: Um, you could have many different types uh, in there but you could uh, um, I think the town when the town does a town sponsored project they do their own type of deed restriction. If it was like a private sector applicant that would come in Um, I believe you would be able to do a type 3, type 4, maybe a type six But we're doing
3: this to to attract private sector development, so they don't need us to do it, right? Right. So what kind of – I just need to know, do we need a minimum unit size for the housing district? Would that be beneficial to us? Would it be repetitive? Is it not necessary?
4: I don't think it's necessary because you're tying one parking space per unit and at 52,000 per parking space now, you're not going to see 300 square foot units. You're going to see six bedroom units because that's what reduces your parking. So nobody's going to build 500, 300 square foot units if they can build 100 1250s and Mm -hmm. only have one parking space so yeah
2: but on a small site you might have somebody who might do a couple of 300s and a couple of a thousand square foot
4: you're still tying it to the parking so it's
2: true i play this game a lot
4: and i think the building code code, i think has a minimum 250.
1: Oh, I wouldn't be able to speak on the building code. I apologize.
4: Yeah, I think there's a minimum size in the building code for for unit. Yeah, I think what I was
2: saying, Robin, was that we can go back and look at are we. There are some minimum sizes in those different uh, types. We can go back and look at those and see if those are appropriate and and address those as well as part of this whole effort. To well, I think,
3: think of it in one way is, you know, typically in a, a normal market, um, like the market would dictate those choices, right? If you create a unit that's too small or doesn't have enough parking, then that unit wouldn't be saleable. And But in, in this very unique situation, um, I don't know, somebody somebody said it, um, you'd buy a three-wheeled car just because that's, that's all that was available. Right. Um, and so I just want to know, like, do we need to put some quality of life safeguards into the housing district up front, or do we not need to do that, right? Does it need to be a minimum unit size or a maximum unit Does size? Does a three wheel
0: car only need a .75 parking? <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, okay, so I mean.
4: I've always felt that because of the commercial linkage unit sizes, that should be a standard that applies throughout the town mm-hmm. rather
1: than making it up as we go along. And that's kind of what we do with Westville multifamily. We put that minimum unit size when we were talking about doing minimum unit sizes. That's kind of what we did with the parking was the four hundred and thirty eight from you remember we were proposing that part. And exactly to your point, Henry, make sure we're being consistent when we're talking about some things through town. So especially if someone wanted to use one of these as as a commercial linkage, you know, then it would qualify under that minimum size. They'd have to buy
4: 1.3 units.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a good
3: point.
2: So we can get back to you on some of that. What I was suggesting is we can go back and look at it and see if there is something that we need to do there uh, to be consistent. GRFA, um, you know, it's in this town hard to say these words of having no GRFA. you know, it used to be the theory, and I don't really think it ever played out, was that if you limit GRFA, you'll end up with more creative, uh, more creative building designs because it'll cause you to have to suck it in and push it out. I don't think they really ever came out. I mean, there's, you know, there's some boxes around town that were built in the 80s that, that make that theory not work out so well. But that was one of the theories. But uh, again, it's just another massing and bulk control that we're basically saying let's get rid of that and just rely on the other standards
3: um,
2: the parking and mobility section uh, i have to tell you that i hadn't really spent a lot of time looking at this section before i got this assignment to work on this and i was kind of blown away with the amount of Of all the regulations you have in the town code, this one seemed to have been spent a lot of time working on it. It had a lot of elements in there. Again, here what we were proposing to do is say, and this basically came out of discussions with staff that it seemed like sort of the accepted parking space per unit was kind of landing in the range of one parking space per unit. And so why don't we just say, let's just set that as our standard, and then if somebody wants to do less than that, um that you kick in um you kick in these requirements it still said that you still had to provide information on the layout of the parking spaces of course um you know are you doing any offsite parking as part of your project uh, what are the parking uh, for bicycles um, what you know how is your guest parking being operated how are you assigning spaces and that sort of thing because all that stuff uh, makes a difference i guess in terms of how uh, a property is operated. And then what we were basically saying is that um, if you were doing something less than, than that, then the and rather than the planning commission being the review agency for the mobility plan, we were saying the administrator would review the mobility plan and render a decision on that. That could also be then appealed to the town council. Um, it could also be the DRV um, that would look at that but it, it seemed based on the kind of critical elements that were in here I, don't know, I, I thought that it seemed like um, oops, sorry it seemed like um, that uh, that the staff um, would be the appropriate body to kind of take all those pieces and put it together Then uh, this is the section. Sorry, can we
3: go back up? Yep. Um, So I don't know where this was just in my notes. It it refers to to 12106 parking and off-site joint facilities. If you follow the rabbit hole down of what should be um, prescribed. It's somewhere in our code 12106 apparently. Um, Says that off-site parking or jointly used parking facilities would be approved by the town council if located within 300 feet of the use served. I think for the housing district that should be flexible. If there's an off-site parking or off-site vehicle storage location that's identified by that project as far away as the airport, I mean, I think that 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 should be acceptable in the housing district specifically. I don't know why. That's a good point. Uh, uh, why not?
6: Yeah, in the housing
3: district specifically, is because you're, you know, your housing is tied to your job, right? And so, if you sell your car to get the housing, to take the job, and then you lose your job, and then you lose your housing, it's gonna really suck if you don't have a car. So, if there's, if there's an opportunity, if somebody forward-thinking can figure out an off-site storage location, this could tie into our peer-to-peer car sharing opportunity down the line, if that ever materializes. Um, Offsite vehicle storage should be allowed wherever anybody can find it, wants to do it, makes sense.
2: Yeah, and I think that that 300 foot distance probably came out of an era when we were thinking of Vail Village or you were thinking of Lion's Head and that there might be some shared facility like Village and Plaza comes to mind, probably was written kind of thinking about them that it wouldn't, wouldn't have to be on your property, but it was close by. Um, but I think for the, like that 300-foot distance would never really work for probably any of the properties that we're talking about. It'd be basically like your next-door neighbor's property would be the only one that you'd probably be able to, to utilize. So I agree with you that I think that we should look at that 300-foot parameter and, and change that. Yeah. It has
4: come up in recent years with Projects in the village.
1: Yeah, and that's typically using our pay and lieu section or part, or kind of when we're talking about village development, that they can either do it. There's a district where they can do it within 300 square feet or pay and lieu. Um, so that's kind of where that comes from, I think typically.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. I think it, again, I think it was kind of predicated around like the village and in Lionshead more than sort of outliers
3: as long as we i mean i think we can just declare it separately housing district if you've got an off-site storage solution for vehicles let that be anywhere why why not
1: yeah so sorry just looking at the today with so what references section 12-10 as far as parking and um when it talks about our mobility plan that's kind of referencing back to if it's below what's required in 12-10 um, then when the mobility plan kicks in and so the, we redid this mobility plan. I think it was 2020, 2021, because in the housing zone district, we were seeing I believe, variances to go below the parking minimums anyways. So we kind of said, well, it's obviously a little bit different. This creates more flexibility. And within this district um, is kind of consistent with what the rest of the housing zone district had. So that allowed people to go down below the minimum, which is, I think, sometimes up to 2.5 spaces per unit. Um, they kind of brought it down to if you're providing all these different items, as far as bicycle storage, a transportation, or a uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for a study, a parking study that shows you can utilize less spaces, then it was that flexibility was built in with this parking mobility management plan. The specific section you're talking about, I think, is still referencing that core district that's inside the, the villages, so it's not applicable to 300 square feet. What we have in the parking mobility plan actually says offsite vehicle storage. and the idea we put behind there was maybe you need a car, you have a car, and you don't need it every day. If someone provides parking somewhere else in town or down valley, then that can count towards your mobility plan because you're not doing it on-site, but you're providing some place for people to store their car um, at that point. So I, I don't think the 300 feet kicks into this mobility plan as you're contemplating.
3: Okay.
2: Uh, Location of business activity, we weren't making any change there. This was really just dealing if you had a commercial operation and you can't put all your stuff out on the sidewalk for sale. Um, The other section um, was basically this uh, uh, 12-6-I-10, where the other development standards prescribed. And again, so this is just taking out um, those ones that the Planning Commission was determining, so just deleting those out. In exchange for having a codified standard, um, the development plan um, requirement, which required, you know, a hearing, it's basically the same thing as a site plan um, that you get. But the but the the planning commission was having to uh, um, make some findings and uh, about uh, sorry make some findings about the suitability of the plan and its uh, uh, compatibility with know with the surrounding uses so that would go away in deference um, to uh, it just being an allowed prescribed use within that district sort of back to the point of when you zone a piece of property to housing zone district you're basically saying it's going to be this and these are the development standards that are going to apply and so you make that decision sort of at at zone at the time of zoning rather than um, at the time of uh, development plan approval
4: Dominic, uh, go back please. Uh, bottom paragraph F, is the requirement to go to DRB picked up somewhere else?
2: It is. It's just picked up in the, in the general code. Uh, and then these are all of the, the, the plan requirements and then these are the criteria that would have been utilized previously When talking about approvals, you know, the building design, architecture, building improvements and activities, um, form of functional development plan, open space and landscaping, pedestrian and vehicular circulation, environmental impacts, compliance with the comprehensive plan. Again, some of those items would still be evaluated by the planning, by the DRB um, as part of a development plan approval. Others would be picked up in the rezoning effort when you rezoned it to um, the to housing zone district, for instance, like the compliance with the comprehensive plan uh, would be typically a standard they would apply at the, at the point of rezoning uh, versus a development plan application. Um, so I can go back to that. Um, and so that's basically what we had today we're, we're seeking your input um our plan would be to come back at the next meeting with a uh, final recommendation and uh, some final edits if, if we have some that we want to make whatever we come in with obviously you're uh, have the ability to, to to evaluate it make a recommendation to the town council that it you know should be something as as proposed or something that you feel should be different um, than what we've proposed here. Um, So we certainly can go back um, and work on some changes if you guys have some specific recommendations. Uh, And that's what we have. I do do have, uh, just as a reminder, I'll buzz this really quickly, is just the criteria um, for this when we get to you on the 25th. You know, is you know, you have to find that it furthers the specific purposes of the zoning regulations. Um, that it you know complies with our master planning documents. Um, and we kind of pulled some you know, con the ideas here. This is stuff that you'll see next time mostly, but basically showing that everything we're doing here is sort of congruent with the, uh, the comprehensive plan. Um, you know, talking about how conditions have changed. Um, that warrant there being an amendment. And I think that we all know how conditions have changed. The world has changed. The construction costs are different. Uh, The critical nature of the need um, has, you know, has obviously become very obvious. Um, And so, you know, we've learned a lot over the years. Um, These are all the parcels today that are zoned, these nine parcels that are zoned in the housing zone district, I think, soon to be eight. Probably Uh, the Booth Falls one will probably fall off uh, this map at some point or not. We'll find out. (laughs) Too soon. Uh, Too soon. Again, so I was pointing out is the conditions have changed. I mean, obviously the world has changed in terms of housing production. I think recognizing that really the entire country is looking at this issue and trying to figure out ways where maybe our zoning our our beliefs of zoning and some of the things that we've done for the last 50 years or you know maybe the last 80 years has really been um, something that is compounded and ended up where we are today um, this workable relationship um, you know amongst uh, development objectives is a criteria that we'll have to, to look at um, and then our favorite one, which is anything else that the Planning Commission thinks is important, which is a very odd criteria, <laughs> um, that uh, we might actually look at changing some of these criteria in the future too. Um, but that's it. So I just wanted to remind everybody that there is that criteria and that those criteria and that we'll be back addressing those fully in our staff report, but they will be.
0: All right, with that, we're going to uh, move to comment.
1: Yes, we will see if there's anyone online wishing to give public comment, please raise your hand. And we'll check and see if anyone has raised their hand. And is there,
0: while we're waiting on that, is there anyone in the room that would like to comment on the proposal? No one online?
3: There's no one online, so no comment
0: all right i'm going to start with commissioner Hagedorn and one note that i just kind of as we're having this discussion represent your suggestions as your suggestions not the suggestions of the commission um, so we can kind of input them as such on the record sure
5: so overall um, i like this effort when i read through the previous version of the code it kind of seemed Crazy to me, and this is no offense to any staff who worked on this on this H uh, zoning. That it'd be so incredibly ambiguous that essentially a applicant would have to, you know, roll the dice on what a given PEC would approve for a dense for kind of guardrails on a given parcel, um, and that result would change given the makeup of a given PEC in a given year. So I think this effort to kind of codify and define what we expect in the housing district. Is important, and I'm uh, generally in favor of the process. Um, I do like the idea of changing some of those uses to accessory uses, and making the primary uh, permitted or uh, use by right within this zone district uh, district to housing. I think that more clearly defines the, you know, the intent of this zone district. Um, and it just closes, and it's a very fringe scenario, someone would take a piece of housing zoned land and use it for a primary use of one of the other uses listed there, but it does close that door and uh, defines them as accessory uses. Um, let me see here. Regarding the landscaping, uh, I support that elimination. If there have been multiple variances in the past that have been granted to that portion, when a, when a variance becomes the norm, in my opinion, it's no longer a variance and there's no reason for it to be such in the code. Um, two things that are maybe a little more concerning to me are regarding the setback. So, it's my opinion that we should craft this such that the setbacks make sense. And that if you know, there is a variance required, that really should come to the PEC. You know, if someone is working within the guardrails that we are setting out for the zone district, great. They can cruise straight through and go through an accelerated process with the DRB and not have to do a development review with the PEC. But if they ask, are asking for something different, that's a, that's a variance. And variances right now are within the realm of the PEC. I know there is the accommodation within the public, or there is the kind of, that is the one exception in the public accommodation district for a setback, but I think you mentioned that's kind of more in line with underground development. It's a little more restricted than I think the variance you're talking about here, which is just a general variance. Mm -hmm. And so I think that really does belong with the PEC for review. Um, The parking, I mean, you know my thoughts on, on parking in general, Dominic, but <laughs> you know, going below one per unit and allowing for that, it's slightly concerning to me. Um, you know, One parking spot per unit seems a minimum threshold. And when we're talking about this in the context of the Timber Ridge development uh, file that's coming through right now, you know, a lot of the comment on the PEC has been kind of that one unit, one parking spot per unit as a minimum threshold and meeting that with a mobility, mobility plan. So I think that's something that maybe needs to be reflected upon a little further as those parking requirements. It just seems I don't want to set this zone district up for failure and have projects that don't function because we allow for that and on paper it works great but then in reality it's a a mess. So um, I'm also just trying to think about this in the context of what we're actually applying it to and really. I think the only two undeveloped parcels will be applying it to are Chamonix uh, parcel E and uh, Middle Creek tract A. I believe that, is that correct? When you, when you exclude the redevelopment
1: of Timber Ridge? Right. The, the unzoned portions of our housing zone that are undeveloped kind of that tract D e and then that Middle Creek tract A that we were looking at as lot four and five over there.
5: right. And so, specifically regarding the height, that's where I think about, okay, maybe that height makes sense for those two parcels. Um, Could be even debatable whether that is appropriate for the Chamonix parcel E, given the height of the buildings in that area, because you have that parcel directly adjacent to single family homes and the Chamonix townhomes, which are three stories. And so, if you think about an 85-foot building being constructed on that parcel, that it may not may not be appropriate for that parcel but just you know that basically tells me that this is kind of a forward-looking zone district right and that it's only being applied to, to undeveloped parcels and so we're really looking at maybe other parcels parcels being brought into the zone district in the future and I don't want to be to kind of kneecap the zoning by having that height be an issue for rezoning in the future And so I do think it's important to have restriction possible from the town council um, so that we don't end up in a situation where we've basically created this very niche zoning that then is not applicable to parcels in the future that are trying, you know, it doesn't work with future parcels. So I know that's kind of a lot, but those are my main thoughts. Thanks. Thank you, Commissioner Hagendorn. I am going to go to my left to Commissioner Pratt.
4: I think what you're doing is well intentioned, and I having been on the other side of the table, I wholeheartedly agree with the fact that we need to have defined entitlements at the start uh, rather than an open slate, because then you are at the mercy or at the whim of that particular planning commission and or council who may or may not be there after April 1st or November 1st or whenever the elections are. Uh, That said, I think when you use the term filling the box, you are defining what you put out there perfectly. You have created a box that is 85 feet tall, setbacks 20 feet on all sides, and you're going to fill it up seven stories high. And I don't agree with that. I do not agree that the DRB should be in charge of variances. I think we should set the entitlements to a reasonable level and if you want to go beyond that then you need to come see us i don't think drb is set up for variances other than the isolated cases you've talked about so i think we should um, make the entitlements more reasonable Uh, in terms of setbacks um, you know every housing project has come in uh, has honored the 20-foot front setback but they've had a hard time with the side setbacks and i would propose going to 12 on the sides and 15 at the back. And if you can't live within those limits, then you need to come see us. Uh, site coverage, 75% is an awful lot. Every project we've talked about so far has been in the 30s and 40s. You're talking about doubling that. Um, I thought Timber Ridge was packed in tight. Double that. Um, landscape, I already talked about little pieces. I'll counter your comment, uh, Dominic, that a typical parking spot's 19 feet deep, so the 15-foot rule is not a hindrance. If you want to do two by 15 as an island between parking, works perfectly fine and counts. Um, in terms of parking, you know, I begrudgingly say that the one per unit works, uh, even though I'm skeptical when you get up to a six-bedroom. What I regret is that there's no defined standard for guest parking. It's all, well, we've got two guest spaces for a 1,000 beds. We've got, you know, UPS spot over here. That's guest parking. I'd like to see a defined standard, um, whether it's 0.01 or 0.05 or some number that we all have to live by um, so that everybody's playing by the same rules. Um, I agree with the accessory uses, uh, dwelling. Uh, Yeah, dwelling units should be an accessory use that is there solely to support the housing and to help pay for it, reduce the cost, because I think Reed will tell you that the the biggest obstacle to getting employee housing built is cost. Uh, We're even seeing Timber Ridge creep up to, what is it, a million dollars for a unit? Yeah. Um, The word affordable housing does not apply in Vail anywhere unless you're getting HUD, HUD subsidies, which are impossible to get so let's not talk about affordable housing. Let's talk about workforce housing. And then we get to height. 85 feet is taller than Lionshead. Um, I did a little research this morning. The city of Boulder is 55 feet. Aspen's 52. Breckenridge is 35. Um, at 85 feet, If Chamonix had come in under these rules, you guys living in Chamonix would be living in seven-story buildings packed 30 feet apart like Timber Ridge is proposed to be, and is that the kind of lifestyle you'd like to live in? Uh, Booth Heights, Vale Resorts could have come in with 85-foot tall buildings on that site and it's a use by right and the council can't, you know, we went through the process and we limited who can appeal. So now the council can't even appeal that. If it's a use by right, they don't have the right to come in because that's a taking. So I'm worried about the height. I would like to see us uh, start at HDMF zoning or somewhere thereabouts with the setback modifications and maybe site coverage modifications. And if you want to build more dense than that, uh, you need to come see us. Uh, I agree that density is irrelevant. Um, because you're right, you're going to fill the box and shove as many units in there as you can afford to build parking for. So uh, I like what you're doing. I just think some of your numbers are way off the charts. And, you know, I know we need housing and I know it's important, but I think we also owe it uh, to the people of this town and to the future people of this town not to build a city and we're rapidly heading
0: down that road. Thank you, Commissioner Pratt. I'm gonna to go to Commissioner Lipnick, please.
6: Um, overall, I like uh, improving the development review process um, because it's been unusually complex, non-responsive, protracted in length, and time costs money, uh, filled with discretions, risks, and uncertainties. So the private developers come to this town and spend a lot of money before they know whether their project is approved or not. And so, I like the overall um, development and review process being uh, having guardrails. Um, and yet you're maintaining the safety uh, of the site um, by various codes Um, and, you know, specifically I think that you know, defining accessory uses is important. Um, I I feel that you're trying to simplify this process um, and by going to one board versus another board versus a commission uh, that simplifies it. Um, and I hear my fellow commissioners saying variances are for the PEC to decide. and. You know I'm okay with parking one to uh, one unit um, okay with if there's less than that the uh, project can go to an administrator or a staff person to work that through um, You know, regarding the setbacks, um, I guess make them looser uh, in the building heights and the site coverage of 75% I think is unnecessary. 50 seems to cover most projects brought before this commission last year. Um, But I like the overall uh, effort to attract more private developers um, because. We definitely need more employee housing if we're going to survive as a community, and um, private partner, uh, private public partnerships are the answer to the housing solutions here in the town of Bale. Um so, you need to bring these developers to the table and make it less risky, less uncertain, and more predictable because they answer to their investors. Um, and you know, it has to be somewhat predictable. And as fellow commissioners have said, if you go outside the guardrails, then uh, you need to come, whether it's to the town council, to the DRB or the PEC, Simplify it. So um, I'm pretty much in support of, you know, uh, guardrails and development standards prescribed for the housing district, um, just like they are for other residential districts.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Commissioner Libnick. Commissioner Smith.
3: Um, <clears throat> I think that this is necessary and important, and I'm glad that we're doing it. Um, residential planning and zoning in general developed around these two foundational ideas: that there was a single-family home and a personal vehicle for every human being that could drive. That's just not a possible reality for the future people of Vale, and it's not really a reality for most of the current working residents of Vail um, without deed restricted multi-family alternate mobility housing projects we're just not going to have any people that, that live and work here anymore so um, I think that the the system that was created back in the 80s to produce a built environment. Um, produced that built environment, but it's just not survivable anymore. Um, so we have to change and this is, this is where we're going to do it, is in the housing district. Um, the housing district is, is currently an outlier. Uh, we rely on staff and objective criteria for approvals in almost all of the housing that gets done in this town. So making the housing district more definitive objective and procedural um brings that in line with with how we build other things so i'm for it it increases consistency and consistency is really important to track that private investment because we can't keep doing this alone not every housing project in this town can be a government sponsored project Um, we just we simply don't have enough resources to do that so we need partners and if partners need consistency, let us provide that consistency to them. Um, I don't think that we should put uh, variances on D or B um, flexibility didn't work for the housing district when it was under this board. I don't think that we should perpetuate flexibility onto the next board and expect a different result. Um, let's just solve it for them. set the height, set the lot coverage make a determination and see what's produced. We can always change the rules if we, if we get something we don't like um, for the next time, but, you know, let's not make it subjective. Um, setbacks, I think that I, I just don't think that we need 20-foot setbacks. Um, this property on the housing district, I think that we need to break the idea that open space is hanging out in the front yard. Um, If you're in a large housing development, hanging out in the front yard, that 20-foot front is not cool. You can accommodate more open space on the interior of a large project, and if that means smaller setbacks, that's fine with me. For the residential districts or properties that might border it, I think that we can just let it reflect those districts and so that could maybe also tie an incentive for the single family home zone districts if they would like to reduce their setbacks to 10 feet um, then the housing district could also benefit from that too Um, so we're all in it together. Site coverage, uh, 75% of the total area sounds great. My understanding is that is a way to limit surface parking if you can allow building to to engulf more of the the site. Um, I think surface parking is an abhorrent waste of space in a place that land is very expensive. Um, If We can do anything we can to put buildings over parking spots, that would be great. More buildings, more livability is awesome. Um, Landscaping is 25% fine. Um, I don't know if there's some way we can build in there. Preference for trees and not lawn. I don't know if we need more Kentucky bluegrass. Um, Lot area, minimum lot size, I don't. I'm I'm not sold on it. I'll think about it more. I'll overthink it, but I don't have any current feedback on that. Height. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, op- take an opposing point of view, in that I think that we need height along the frontage road. I think that that creates a sound barrier. Nobody is going to be deprived of a view of six lanes of traffic. Um, so I think that height should be by the frontage road. I think that 70 or 85 feet is fine. Um, We will be selective about what we zone to the housing district because of that. And I think legal can get creative Um, if the council decides that they would like to RFP a development that is only so high. Maybe they can figure that out. Um, But for planning and zoning, I think we should let height be 85 feet, 70 feet, whatever. Um, density, I don't think it should be in crawl, GRFA, node control, parking, a one-to-one parking ratio. I think we can get behind. I'm, I'm for the one-to-one parking ratio. Um, I think that should be an automatic approval. There's a lot of things in the parking and mobility section that I think that PEC can positively contribute to. Um, but I'm not entirely sure if that should require a review of any one project. I don't know if I'm—I don't think I'm articulating this right because I don't have my thoughts fully formed around it. But one to one's fine. Um, for the next time, I know that there's a reporting requirement for this mobility plan. I'd like to see one of those. Like, has that ever been produced? Or I don't know what that.
1: The first uh, development to take advantage of the mobility section is the residents at Mainvale, Vale, so they will not have to report till one year from their certificate of occupancy. So oh. it's a rel- relatively new addition to the code that we did for this. So it's only it has only been used once.
3: Oh, all right. Well, I guess that we don't have any idea if it's working or not. Okay. Um. I think that's all for now. I can think about I can think about it more. But is there anything I left out? All right, I'm done.
0: Thank you, Commissioner Smith. Um, I, I do have a few comments uh, on the, what we're proposing. I do agree with my fellow commissioners that providing a clear path towards entitlements and and some goal posts to shoot for, I think that's important. It eliminates some of the vagueness and uh, difficulties that were existing in the previous um, guidelines in trying to bring this housing district through PEC. Uh, I'm all in favor of simplifying the process. The one thing I will say is that the PEC, I that I've been involved in has certainly gone a long way towards staying in our lane, specifically to zoning and staying out of the design side. Um, I know that there have been some changes on the PEC which have helped us get closer to that goal. But it's certainly been my goal since I started and I know a couple of my other fellow commissioners is to stay in our lane and stay with our scope, which is purely zoning and not stepping into the design side of the process because we have a very capable DRB that can handle that. That being said, I do think it's important that variances that require an adjustment or a possible exception based on the zoning that is established by PEC should kick back to PEC. I think kicking the can over to DRB that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the original zoning of the project and asking them to judge on it is counterintuitive. Uh, I do also see that our town properties are not the areas that I think that we're gonna be really dealing with this Kind of development path. It's going to be the developers that are coming forward. They're going to be trying to get this housing district zoning on their private properties and projects. And knowing developers, you and I both know them well, Dominic. We? They will look at these numbers and they will salivate based on the seventy-five. If we just took the ten thousand square foot lot, the minimum lot available, and we took the site coverage at seventy-five percent. Just based on the basic math and the height restriction, you would be putting 90 plus thousand square feet of GFRA within a 10,000 square foot lot, which is insanity. That is creating Brooklyn level density here in Vale, And I will say that I am not comfortable with us blowing the locks off the height. I think there should be a minimum slope requirement, a 412, eliminates that last floor that someone could push if you went sub 412 you went to a 212 roof slope you could get an additional floor within that 85 feet which would then max out that density again so i i I feel like our height restrictions i would like to review that i think it's a little aggressive the density at 75 percent i feel is a little aggressive the other thing that no one's brought up is the landscaping being shrunk down to 25 percent the key component with a lot of our projects that have come through is the landscaping is also utilized for snow storage. We need a viable snow storage area, and the landscape has always contributed to that. Taking another five percent off, if everyone remembers the Timber Ridge application that's currently in front of us, snow storage has been a significant issue in working that through. So, in reducing that landscaping site coverage, you we deal with snow. I don't know if anyone remembers last winter, but January was rough. So let's remember that we have to deal with snow and where we're gonna put it and how we're gonna manage it. And also when you went through the criteria that we're talk- starting to look at, your first criteria was kind of light, air, space, and looking at, that was one of the criteria that the PEC was gonna look at. It was number one on the list that you put up earlier. And then in the setback issue is the other one I wanna identify. The 20-foot setback on an 80-foot building i anyone that was involved in the evergreen project realizes the battle that we had the shading that would occur if you lived anywhere east or west of an 85 foot building that went up next to you your residential area that will cast a long and cold shadow throughout the winter so i think it's important for us to kind of look at that setback and the space and the air that it's creating within the community I am trying to maximize density and the available housing units for this public, but I also think it needs to be done in a responsible, viable way. So in kind of closing, the one other thing, I do have a little bit of an issue with the administrator position. Specifically, it seems like a little conflict of interest for Town of Vail to be their own administrator on their mobility plans and some of their developments. That's why PEC was, Providing that stopgap, I think you, the administrator and the town could get caught a little bit short, saying they were doing a little home cooking on their own projects, which will be these, these major projects that are coming through. So the administrator thing, there's a little discomfort there. Um, the parking, uh, let's not forget that it does cost minimum of well 52 to 55 thousand dollars to put parking underneath a building. That's the minimum. I just did a project the Lion's Head, where we were looking at the bare cost of going with underground parking at $225,000, which is not viable for employee or affordable housing. It won't work. So on-site, above-ground parking is the most efficient and certainly the most affordable way to manage your parking. So looking at that and the parking, the only other thing I agree with Henry, maybe a 1.2, which means there's one guest spot for every five residential spots is something that we'd like to look at, or at least a threshold that it captures on-site guest parking. I don't think we should say your guest parking when you arrive is at the lion's head structure or at the village structure, which is within um, the circumference of the earth as far as distance from your facility. I think it needs to be on-site and I think we need I think one guest spot for every five residential units is is fairly reasonable. So that being said, I do appreciate what we're trying to do and I do as a developer and also as a PEC member streamlining that, but I do think the variances and wanting to deviate outside of what are very generous accommodations to this process should come back to the D, the PEC because if we're gonna zone it and someone wants to deviate from, from that potential zoning requirements, it should come back to PEC, not necessarily go on to DRB. So those are the only comments I have. I know that's a laundry list you got from only five of us today, but um, with that, I think I'd like to close for comment. Any other commissioner comments that we want to go on the record with?
2: Do want to make a clarification? It's actually for Henry's benefit, and he's going to, here he is that uh, landscape requirement that's 15 foot in the 300 square foot, it's 15 foot in every direction. That's why it's unusable. So to build, uh, to do the idea that you were talking about required to be 15 feet wide and 15 feet long at a minimum, which makes for a hefty little landscape island.
0: I agree that's unreasonable. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, Dominic, and thank you, staff. Mr.
4: Chairman, I move we table item 3.1 to what's the next meeting september? september 25th september 25th 2023 this is pec
0: 23-0023 seconded i have a second um, commissioner hagedorn a motion from commissioner pratt all in favor vote? Aye. aye aye thank you for all your input thank you Thanks,
4: Mr. Chairman, I move that we table items 3.2, 3.3, 3.4, and 3.5 to the September 25th, 2023 meeting. These are PEC items, no number on that one, 23-0018, 23-0019, 23-0020. Thank
0: you, Commissioner Do I have a second. second Second. all in favor aye Aye. I'm gonna give Bobby the second on that that's fair so I'd like to move for approval of minutes from our meeting uh, August
3: I have a I would like to request a revision
2: sure
3: to page four Smith refers to topics of funding leasing in states that she can't add to the topic and she is not knowledgeable regarding those topics I did not say that I was not knowledgeable. I said that I had an opinion. I didn't know that it was my purview as a commissioner. I just couldn't live with it. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Let the record note that she does have an opinion.
3: <laughs> I have an opinion.
0: <laughs> on that subject. And we will adjust the meeting's accord- or the meeting minutes accordingly. Thank you. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. All right, and for our next item, uh, informational update from uh, Pete Wadden, and that is microinvertebrates and the Eagle River Water and Sanitation 2023 presentation um, on the 2021 MMI data. Good afternoon, commissioners.
7: Thank you for. Uh, taking the time giving me the time to present this information as many of you know I love talking about this stuff um, the reason this these slides have Eagle River Water and Sanitation District logos all over them and the name of their uh, lab director is that most of our biomonitoring on Gore Creek is paid for by Eagle River Water and Sanitation District so uh, this data belongs to them first although it's very very important to what I and the rest of the environmental sustainability team do here at Town of Vail. So just want to acknowledge um, important support from our partners. So uh, many of you know that Gore Creek is a 303D listed impaired waterway. It has been such since 2012. And that's based on state standards for the sort of aquatic life um, that the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, or CDPAG, Expects to see in a stream like Gore Creek. Um, we began, well, really, Eagle River Water and Sanitation District's contractors began uh, monitoring Gore Creek macroinvertebrate populations in 2009, following uh, concern from the community, primarily from uh, fly anglers and fly fishing guides, who believed they were seeing declines in key uh, aquatic insect numbers. Um, so each September, uh, we have contractors from Timberline Aquatics, which is a Fort Collins-based firm that specializes in, in this very work, out in our waterways uh, collecting insect samples. Uh, I believe there are 11 sites on Black Gore Creek and Gore Creek. Uh, there are four on Red Sandstone Creek. There are a bunch in the Eagle River as well. Um, keep in mind that this data is from 2021. Our 2023 samples were just collected last week. Um, These need to be individually identified. Each of these in 2021, 31,630 insects need to be individually identified to species to get this data. So it's very um, time consuming and labor intensive for the contractors who do this work. You can picture them sitting over a tray of alcohol preserved uh bugs looking at the mouth parts of those insects to see whether they have two teeth or three teeth to
0: figure out what um, species they belong to hey pete i have a question just just so we can identify this data was collected during what period of 2021 because there was fairly significant event on 17 of September that year.
7: Yeah, extremely importantly, this data was collected before that event. Thank you. Um, Off the top of my head, I don't know exactly the date, but it was about a week or two before that. Mm -hmm. And I do have some slides in here that pertain to um, that Mill Creek spill that you're referring to, so we'll get into those at the end as well. Um, So in any given year, there are about 100 different invertebrate species found in Gore Creek, uh, 98 in 2021. So at the um, healthiest locations, the unimpacted locations on Gore Creek, you can expect to find 100 different species of bugs. I'm going to use a bunch of terms interchangeably. Mostly these are insects, but it also includes worms, uh, snails, some crustaceans, uh, arthropods, and things like that. And you'll see this slide specifically calls out the mayfly, stonefly, and caddisfly taxa. Uh, We're going to look at some data referred to as EPT, That refers to ephemeroptera, plecoptera, and tricoptera, which are the orders of insects that those three belong to. Um, Those three uh, classes, orders of insects are um, extremely, or very familiar to fly anglers, but they're also extremely uh, important indicators of the health of a waterway because they're highly sensitive to pollution. So as a waterway gets polluted or disturbed, they're often the first ones we see disappearing. Oh, I should mention that um, one of the contractors is pictured here in the stream using what's called a Hess sampler. Um, It's a cylinder that's exactly one-tenth of a meter um, around, or one-tenth of a meter in in area. And they take ten samples at every location to get uh, how many bugs are living in one square meter of stream bottom. (coughs) Um, So I mentioned we'll look at the EPT numbers uh, what Gore Creek is graded on by the state is the MMI, the multi matrix index, um, which is a composite of a bunch of different factors that gives us a score to represent the health of aquatic bug populations in Gore Creek. We're going to look at both the Colorado version 3 and version 4 MMI indices because they changed. Basically, the state changed, moved the goalposts on us a little bit, and changed how they're grading Gore Creek in the period that the town of Vale has been very actively working to restore it we'll also look at hbi the Hilsenhoff biotic index um, that measures pollution tolerant taxa so mmi version 3 and version 4 are different they're both um, on a scale of 0 to 100 and they combine um, a number of different uh, metric values including that ept taxa and the hbi that i mentioned um, version 3 i've believe was used through 2018, and the state began using version four in 2019. And it reflects um, the health of Gore Creek rather differently. So we'll look at each of these uh, um, separately. You all know what Gore Creek looks like. Um, Here's a map showing most of the sites uh, that are monitored on Gore Creek um, and one on Booth Creek that's also included in the data. We also have some sites on Red Sandstone Creek that we'll get to a little bit later. Um, So I don't know if this is even all that important. Let's just get into it a little bit. That MMI version four has a few more, I don't know, factors uh, brought into it. Probably the biggest difference between version three and version four is that version three essentially gives us credit for any token individual of a species in the creek. And version four um, takes into account how many there are. So if, for example, a site was being monitored at the mouth of a very healthy tributary, let's say um, uh, Bighorn Creek is really, really healthy. Does that make sense? And uh, we have a site right at the bottom of it and one, species of a very, or one individual of a very sensitive taxa washed into Gore Creek from Bighorn Creek They don't really live in gore creek but one made it out there and into the sample in version three gore creek would get lots of points for that in version four it takes into account that there's only one of these is there really a population of them in gore creek Um, and you'll see that that actually reflects pretty badly on our scores in gore creek (coughs) so this is a busy graph Um, moving from left to right we're looking at those sites on gore creek with a couple on black gore creek and booth creek thrown in there um, each of those clusters of colored bars represents one year of monitoring um, at that site. So um, it's important to point out and important to note, I think, that uh, Black Gore Creek still has pretty healthy macroinvertebrate populations. I still hear from people in the community who say, oh, it's not my landscaping practices, it's Interstate 70, where it's the golf course that's causing impairment in Gore Creek. And I think that um, you all know Black Gore Creek winds down under Vale Pass, or on Vale Pass under I-70. It's heavily impacted by the highway. We certainly saw some sedimentation there um, from the highway this summer. Still has pretty healthy bug populations in spite of those impacts. It's really not until you get to about Bighorn Park in the developed parts of East Vale that bug numbers really decline. <clears throat> and they stay low uh, throughout the rest of town. What I would like to point out is that um, we've seen an upward trend. And again, this is MMI version three, so this is the outdated one that we don't really get credit for anymore. But based on uh, the original system used to determine the health of Gore Creek, a lot of these sites have uh, achieved passing co- passing scores in several recent years. So progress has been made. Um, Gore Creek is not off the 303D list, and when we look at version four, it still looks like we're pretty far from it, but there is some good news mixed in with these numbers. Um, this is showing uh, 2021 MMI version three as compared to the average of the previous uh, 12, uh, 11 years of data. So for the most part, if you're looking at those red boxes compared to the blue diamonds, the red boxes are 2021 um, and with a couple of exceptions like gore creek above black gore creek um, right in the middle does my
2: pointer work oops we're
7: to i was trying to point oh it does um, so there are a couple of exceptions in the middle here where 2021 was below the average uh, but all of our actually impacted sites with the exception of stevens park looked better than the average did i take it out of full screen or sorry about that thanks greg mmi version 4 um, paints a much bleaker picture of Gore creek as far as trying to get off the 303d list um, the red line that crosses this i should have mentioned before is impairment if we're above the green line we uh, the the site automatically passes if it's in the in that between zone there's kind of a tiebreaker calculation that I don't totally understand but um, most of our sites are consistently far from achieving passing scores uh, still after many years of work and great investment from town of Bale. Um the silver lining though is if you look at any of those clusters of bars on the right side you see a stair-stepping upward trend we're kind of slowly moving in the right direction um, but we're far from being where we want to be um, again version four versus the average of the previous several years we're really just looking at the right side of this graph the left ones are kind of our, our control sites um, so based on version four again 2021 was above average or at average um, for for all sites same is true of the uh, stonefly, mayfly, and caddisfly taxa, um, with one exception there below the veil wastewater treatment plant. Um, all of the sites that matter uh, uh, scored above average in 2021.
4: AP? Yes. Uh, why are all the controls down?
7: Um, we would take that as background noise that there was something going on in nature that caused. Drops in macroinvertebrate scores that year, so that actually reflects better on the, f- or, or or is is even more, um, I guess it's even more positive that our our experimental sites were above average in a year when the sites that are in the national forest wilderness, for example, were down. So it might have had to do with stream temperatures. It might have had to do with flows that year. Maybe it was a particularly dry summer. Um, I can, I can only speculate as to why, but those are sites that are essentially out of our control. Um, they're in nature's hands, so to speak. Um, so I'm, I'm not actually concerned about the fact that those ones are down. Um, HBI, we're looking at golf scores here. This is, um, low numbers are good, is, is what I mean by that. The, this is a measurement of nutrient-tolerant taxa. So as the good bugs, the ones that are sensitive to pollution disappear, numbers of pollution tolerant insects increase so when we see lower pollution tolerant bug numbers that's a good sign for the creek Um, and again the pattern that we've seen on the last few slides continued in 2021 um, as well i won't go into a ton of detail on black gore creek but you can um, compare these sites on black gore creek to the sites on gore creek and both in version 4 which we're looking at here and version 3, Black Gore Creek bug numbers do pretty well. I only include that to uh, further illustrate the point I made a moment ago that uh, there's something that's going on in the town of Vail that's not going on (coughs) up up on Vail Pass that's causing impairment to these bug populations. Um, We can't put 100% of the blame on CDOT or Interstate 70. We have to own this here in Vail. Um, Red Sandstone Creek, here's the uh, silver lining. This is our good news. This is, this is my favorite part. Um, so Red Sandstone Creek is like a little microcosm of Gore Creek. It's like a little example of what's going on in the bigger waterway in that we see at our site above the US Forest Service boundary that's relatively undisturbed. You know, there's a dirt road and some campsites and um, some, some distant private properties. Uh, But there's really not anything going on up there that would impact the health of the waterway. We see healthy bug numbers. As you go downstream towards um, the developed areas of Red Sandstone Creek, you can see we have a site just above the Red Sandstone Creek Club, one that's just above I-70 and then one that's below I-70 right by the Vale Resort Snow Cat Yard. You see, especially in the early years, declining bug numbers in those developed areas. The good news is, in the last three or four years, those bug numbers have recovered dramatically, maybe almost miraculously, on Red Sandstone Creek. Um, it appears, I think, even more dramatic here under version four, that uh, those, all of those experimental sites and even the Forest Service site uh, never achieved passing scores until um, 2018. And since 2018, they've achieved passing scores every year, including at the site that's right by the Vale Resort, Snowcat Yard, and that's downstream of I-70. I think this has happened because of a change in landscaping practices at one or two properties on Red Sandstone Creek. I should say that that's speculation. I haven't been able to get the information to prove that. But I think we've gotten um, through education and outreach, we've gotten through to some of the properties there, and there's less chemicals going down. Um, on some of those landscaping chemicals going down on some of those properties. Uh, I can't really think of anything else that has changed to cause such a dramatic rebound of bug numbers. So this is heartening to me because it um, it's a smaller system than Gore Creek, but it makes me think that if it can can be done on Red Sandstone Creek, maybe one day this could be achieved on Gore Creek as well.
6: Um, this is a Pete, summary from... Pete? Yes, Um... Sorry. What do you think the landscaping changes are? I, um, I can't say
7: 100% for certain but um, people have sometimes asked me if I could wave a magic wand and change one thing to restore Gore Creek, what would it be? Um, and I would love to eliminate foliar applied pesticides, the kind that are sprayed on the outside of trees within something like 100 feet of waterways in Vail. Uh, We can't do that because of state regulations at this time, um, but we're continuing to pursue means to do that. Uh, If we step back a little bit further, I would say that it's landscaping chemicals in general. um, And the new 10-foot no-mo zone that uh, this commission and the town council approved last year, I think takes some steps in the right direction to separate landscaping chemicals from the creek by creating a 10-foot buffer zone where people are not trying to maintain emerald green turf grass throughout um, throughout the summer. So, I think you know, town leadership has taken steps to begin to overcome this problem, and we're doing more at the state level. I have a presentation to the uh, legislative committee on water resources and agriculture tomorrow about pesticides as well. Um, I've more and more come to think that that is what did this. Um, Our decline in bug numbers really coincided with the pine beetle epidemic. And we know that people started spraying their trees more during the mountain pine beetle epidemic to try to protect against that pine beetle. Um, But they're broad spectrum insecticides that are being used. So it may not come as a surprise that as people were spraying bug poison in their trees, bugs began to decline in Gore Creek. Um, so thank you for the question so overall stress to aquatic life is found in areas of development um, Vale has reached near urban levels of density in some places in about 60 years close to the creek we uh, should not be surprised that that has effect affected the hydrology of this watershed um, but with that development come sources of pollutants and, as well and opportunities for those pollutants to wash into the creek more quickly. Um, As you can imagine, roadways and rooftops shed water uh, faster than native soils or even um, turf grass or or landscaping. Um, There's some silver linings. Uh, MMI version four doesn't reflect Gore Creek very well, but even under, or reflect very well on Gore Creek, but even under MMI version four, we're seeing incremental progress um red sandstone creek is a bright spot and there are some places even on gore creek um, that are looking a bit better as well Um, you may be frustrated that we're looking at 2021 data in 2023 i mentioned to you how labor intensive it is for for this stuff to be analyzed we um, found out just before i presented this to town council about a month ago that the 2021 data has been Analyzed, um, and basically what they've told me is it's similar. It shows no great declines, no huge leaps forward, uh, incremental progress in the right direction. So um, this may be a slow grind to get Gore Creek restored, but I think uh, that this community appears to be committed to doing that. Um, we had. Did, you, did the, you mean
5: 2022? You said 2021 has been analyzed, or which year?
7: i did i did misspeak then i meant 2022 2022 yeah we don't have slides for it it's been analyzed and hopefully we'll be able to give you a presentation on 2022 data um, with much less lead time than this one took Um, i've got a little bit of information about the mill creek spill as well but are there any questions about our overall data from
5: 2021 generally what impacts the stream health more Runoff from properties that are adjacent to the creek, or kind of the stormwater system, you know, a stormwater system that collects runoff from throughout town and then deposits into the creek?
7: That is a very good question. Um, The studies that we undertook before the town really started dedicating a lot of funds and a lot of efforts, creating my position, for example, um, ranked those two factors equally. Stormwater, Um, and loss of riparian habitat and landscaping practices were two of the three major causes of impairment in Gore Creek. The third, I think, is kind of related to stormwater, um, the development of impervious surfaces, pavement, rooftops, and things like that. Um, So I don't know if we could say scientifically which is of greater impact. Uh, From a management standpoint, the town has a lot of control over the stormwater system. and at least right now, under the current regime of pesticide regulations at the state level, we have, uh, we're have we basically limited to education and outreach when it comes to the landscaping stuff. Um, so you may be aware that we've installed uh, 270 gutter bin stormwater filtration devices this year. That was with a grant from CDPHE. Um, so that's about a quarter of our stormwater inlets now have a funnel and a sock in them that catches sediment, and we go around uh, twice a year and vacuum those out. So there's not a lot of education and outreach to be done around stormwater other than, you know, what goes down the drain ends up in the creek. Please don't dump things in here. Um, We do have a lot of autonomy when it comes to uh, taking action to filter stormwater. We have less control over the many, many, many property owners and property managers who uh who manage their landscaping along the waterways kind
5: okay, be your filtration is not impacting pesticides that could be brought from you know inland properties through the stormwater system right that's still reaching no. the creek yeah
7: yeah almost certainly not so um i like to emphasize when i'm talking to people that even if you don't have a streamfront property you are in the watershed and have an impact on you know what pollutants water picks up as it moves through the system That being said, uh, the closer you are to a waterway, and a storm drain is a waterway in some ways, uh, the more impact you have. Got it, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the question.
4: Is there subsurface flow that picks up the pollutants and takes it to the creek?
7: Um, You mean like groundwater through the soils? Yeah, well every
4: spring, you know, all the basements in my neighborhood flood because snow melt is coming down the hill towards the creek, and I'm wondering if that's if it gets down to that level or if it's all just surface runoff?
7: It, it takes pretty persistent pollutants to be transported through groundwater. Um, you know for example chlorine, the reason we use chlorine in hot tubs is that it's very reactive and bonds to things really quickly. So if you pump chlorinated water through a little bit of dirt the chlorine disappears pretty quickly and you end up with with pretty untainted water um, even just through a few feet of soil. That's not always the case for heavy concentrations of things like heavy metals, um, but hopefully there's not a lot of heavy metals coming out of those basements. So to, to offer a short answer, I think the risk of pollution from groundwater
0: is pretty minimal. Uh, just looking at the data from 21, we have a pretty significant drop off in invertebrate health from Bighorn Park to the west just in your count numbers uh, which happens to be vale core in most of the development Um, so i guess we can see the human impact there of that development on the invertebrate health but uh, how much input or control do you guys at the environmental department have over town-owned property maintenance and usage, what they use. Uh, specifically, I'm talking about VRD, uh, controlled property, uh, also the foundation and the AMP, uh, the nature center. Does Do you at the environmental department have the ability to kind of mandate? I know you can't do it with the private sector, but Are you guys working directly with, let's say, the golf course and telling them what they are allowed to use and not to use?
7: Um, The golf course is, uh, I would say, top of my list right now. Um, So maybe I should say first that the town has eliminated the use of foliar applied pesticides in all of our landscaping practices, and that includes the the golf course. So in um, I think it was in 2016 that we stopped spraying trees with external pesticides. We went from spraying about 2,000 a year to uh, using systemic pesticides that are injected in the roots or the trunk in 200 to 300 trees a year. Uh, those have much less potential for drift. Um, there are a lot of reasons to, to make that change. And you can see um, some jumps in bug numbers in this historic data that followed that. Um, so, I would say, I guess to answer your question, at Ford Park, um, we have a lot of control over the way Ford Park is managed. The Nature Center is managed um, with no chemicals whatsoever. Betty Ford Gardens is, uh, you know, they use some chemicals, but I have a lot of faith in their, in their wise use of chemicals. The golf course is an Audubon certified golf, golf course, as I'm sure you've heard me say before. Um, But golf courses are very impactful to waterways, and being right on the waterway, you know, even if you're using um, organic fertilizer, it's still fertilizer. It it, uh, encourages the growth of vegetation, and that's true of grass as well as algae if it makes its way into the creek. Um, So a golf course is bound to have impact uh, regardless of. Of uh, of certifications like that although it's a step in the right direction Um, one of my goals in the coming years is to work on a comprehensive uh, study of the golf course to see if we can restore more natural hydrology and more riparian habitat there I think I told you before Commissioner Phillips that I thought I had funding to do that this fall Uh, we may or may not have that uh, sort of depending on uh outcomes of the valuation hearing with vale resorts in the next few years or the next few days that may impact our our ret budget which funds all of uh, all of the parks management and uh, environmental department so um, the golf the golf course is definitely something that we want to tackle in the coming years
0: um so just to follow up to that question of our town-owned properties that are controlled either by us or by leasees. uh are they abiding by our setback rules for invertebrate and mowing and uh i know specifically there's a property that happens to sit right in the middle of town where we mow right to the river uh because it's a high tourist destination but for the most part, are we complying with the own rules that the PEC has set forth in trying to restore this? Um,
7: technically, town property, I think, as you, you probably know, is exempt from those setbacks. Um, you're referring, I think, to Gore Creek Promenade right by um, yeah. up the creek and Mountain Standard. That property is getting a, um, a full reassessment next year. And I have not seen a lot of the details of that, but um, Todd Oppenheimer and Greg Berry, our landscape architects, are taking that on. And I know that they are uh, well aware of uh, the visibility of that area and the impacts that it might have to the waterway as well. Um, our sort of justification for a couple of spots like that is that they are in line with the, um, the intent of the no-mow setbacks. So, throughout town, um, Town of Vail owns 40% of the streamfront. We've planted more than 25,000 native trees and shrubs on that town-owned stream tract since 2016, um, and really modeled the, the staff recommendations for the 10-foot no-mow zone were modeled on the approach that the town took to its own property, which was uh, designate a few small access areas, so that the public can enjoy the creek and protect everything else, try to get people not to trample it and revegetate it. You'll see this along the streamwalk that we have uh, hopefully fairly low profile but effective barriers trying to prevent people from uh, wandering and creating social trails. And then we have designated access points that are kind of sacrificial zones. They might be gravel or stone or even turf grass like the um, Gore Creek Promenade. Although it's my hope that that'll change with the redesign next year. So uh, technically the town's exempt, but we try and I think have done a very good job of
0: uh, meeting the intent of that regulation. So I'm just going to ask a question you might not be able to answer, but you understand that the town being exempt to the town rule is a little counterintuitive as well. There's a bit of a conflict, especially when we're trying to apply these standards to individual private property owners, and yet we're exempting ourselves from these standards as well. So do you have any idea the origin or the reasoning, or Henry's got great history, he probably knows, but uh, where the exemption comes from? Is it just purely on a management aspect that has been put forth by Public Works or How did we exempt ourselves from the rule that we developed?
7: Um, There were a few exemptions included in that regulation, including uh, utility infrastructure, bridges, things like that, um, bike paths. So the the presence of uh, publicly accessible areas like bike paths, creek access, um, boat ramps, there's a little bit of a boat ramp in Eastvale and things like that, is what uh, pushed us towards exempting the town from it. So I guess it was sort of twofold in that we thought that there are places where it is in the public interest um, to have access to the creek that's wider than four feet. Um, And that may be true of boat ramps, that might be true of of stairways and bike paths. We also thought that the town is able to um, live up to the intent and the impacts of this regulation without being regulated by it directly.
0: But you do understand. I certainly understand the, the conflict is, uh, do as I say, not as I do, um, for the public to kind of, the, the perception there is a little conflicted. So that's just a question. And also looking at your your own data numbers, which it will be interesting to see what the new data numbers come back with after the incident, um, what we really see is the recovery aspect. Because you did a test the following summer. Is that correct? 2022 would be the earliest data that we have coming after that, uh, September 17th, 21 spill.
7: We actually did, uh, some special monitoring close to the site of the spill immediately following it. So this 2021 data that we've looked just, just finished looking at, uh, for the overall ecosystem was taken just a couple of weeks before that spill. Um, and when we finish with these questions we can dive into the data that was taken at these sites uh, that you can see on this map just a couple of days after the spill um, if there aren't other commis- other questions from commissioners I'd be happy to do that
0: no I think we'd just like to see a quick kind of uh, yeah review of that information
7: um, so up to this point we've been looking at data that was before the September 2021 Mill Creek algaecide spill. Uh, This data we're about to look at is from just a couple of days after that spill. And it's important to kind of note the sites and locations and their relationship to where the spill was. Uh, The discharge of algaecide and potable drinking water occurred at Pirate Ship Park on Mill Creek. So right in downtown Vail just above the covered bridge. So it impacted the very lowest portion of Mill Creek and Gore Creek from the confluence with Mill Creek downstream. So to try to capture that and capture some controls, um, the aquatic entomologist that we contract to do all of our regular work did some special monitoring following that spill above the spill on Mill Creek, above the spill on Gore Creek, and then below the spill on Mill Creek and at several sites below the spill on Gore Creek. Um this is what that spill did to uh number of species of mayfly stonefly and caddisfly on each of those creeks. You'll see on the far left there were seven species of mayfly stonefly and caddisfly combined in Gore Creek above the spill. Mill Creek was extremely healthy above the spill, 25 different species. Mill Creek just below the spill had two or three species. So it was very very impactful to um, mayflies stoneflies and caddisflies on Mill Creek in particular Um, you have to compare the far left with the fourth from the left to get a picture of Gore Creek above and below the spill so in Gore Creek uh, it went from something like seven species to five so that doesn't seem particularly dramatic but the next slide will show you the actual number of individual bugs above and below the spill so, here we're looking at uh, Gore Creek above Mill Creek. There were about 5,000 individual mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies per square meter. And on Mill Creek above the spill, it was even more than that. It was close to 6,000. Mill Creek um, below the spill, there were essentially none. Uh, Gore Creek below the spill, there were dozens, maybe a hundred individual insects where there had been 5,000. So, it was orders of magnitude of of impact in the immediate aftermath of the spill Um, a bit further down we're looking at Gore Creek below the covered bridge particularly the caddisflies had recovered pretty dramatically this is I think uh, between the covered bridge and the International Bridge and then Gore Creek at Forest Road um, caddisflies and mayflies had recovered significantly but we're still less than half of the, the numbers that we saw above the spill. Um, this is a particular snapshot of betis, which is a, um, a, a family of mayflies that are particularly sensitive to uh, copper. And we believe that this was a copper-based that that caused all these impacts. Um, So Gore Creek above Mill Creek, there were close to 4,500 individual Betis mayflies per square meter. Uh, Below the spill, there were negligible numbers, and somehow that even dropped further down uh, by the covered bridge. It had recovered somewhat uh, to a fraction of the original number down at uh, Forest Road. Um, So that's all the data I have on Mill Creek. The good news is that uh, every indication is that within a year, these bug numbers had largely recovered. Um, One of the good things about a lot of these insect species is that they have short lives and short reproductive cycles. Um, So if the uh, pollutant is removed from the system or washed through the system, the opportunity for them to recover is there, and they typically recover pretty quickly. but you can see that this had really really devastating impact on the bug numbers in the short term
0: great thank you for that data commissioners any questions for pete before we let him go
3: yeah i've got some questions for you um are we going to keep looking at mmv3 or are we are we just going to move to mmv4 and say that's the standard from now on
7: um both MMI version four is the MMI. standard that we're um, that we're held to, that Gore Creek is held to now. But I think it's still valuable to look at both and see, you know, what the original um, what the original standard was. So, in fact, within a couple of years, the state will move to MMI version five. They're continuing to shift and change, and we'll see how that reflects on Gore Creek as well. Um, both version 3 and version 4 are valuable ways to gauge the health of the bug populations in the creek. They're different, and they each have their own drawbacks and things like that. Um, but MMI version 4 is what CDPHE, the De- Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, is using right now to determine whether Gore Creek should remain on the 303D list or um, you know our goal of eventually getting off and staying off of the 303D list.
3: Okay. Um, One of the things that really struck me about this presentation, this is the second time I've seen it, um, was that both uh, Mill Creek and Red Sandstone tell us that if you remove the pollutant, that river will recover quickly. And so when I look at these other figures where we're not meeting our targets, it's just we're not making that choice to have that huge impact that we've achieved We've seen it in Mill Creek, and we've seen it in Red Standstone Creek. Um, So that's exciting because that means if we make those choices and take that action, we can make a big difference in our river health in a very short period of time. So my questions are how do we do that, right? Um, One is if we can't do it legislatively, we're bound to the hand-to-hand combat with hearts and minds. Um, and so, I think about that, like, I'm excited about not polluting a river with pesticides, but, how, you know, so you've convinced me, but what actions can I, can I take or can I do to ensure that? Because I don't have the lexicon to negotiate a pesticide contract. Like, I'm, a, I'm not an informed and empowered consumer. Have an HOA and the HOA's property manager. The property manager has a landscaper. Those landscapers, um, like, if I want to say, let's stop putting pesticides on the property that I actually do have control over, is there like a short list, a, a handout that like I can sign and say we don't use these things, and is it in Spanish too, <laughs> and then we can both sign it and. It, they will be good
7: the, probably the best thing I, I think you're touching on the best thing you can do which is change practices in the places you can control yeah um, and to the extent that the public might be listening to this i would encourage you to find landscapers um, who do not use harmful pesticides and encourage your hoas not to use foliar applied pesticides on trees at all there are a lot of properties in vale that spray their trees for aphids which is almost never necessary. Um, in my opinion, the impacts of spraying bug poison on, on the outside of Aspen trees to keep honeydew from dripping on your car windshield or something like that um, is, is, is really, I don't know, using a machine gun to kill a mouse or something like that. It's really, really out, outsized impacts for what you're achieving. Um, and for other tree pests, there are more effective and less harmful ways to treat trees with pesticides, and the Town of Bale has set the example with those by using only systemically applied pesticides, basically an injection rather than a shower for the trees. Um, So if an arborist really thinks trees need to be treated, use systemic pesticides, not foliar applied pesticides. Um, The other thing you can do as an individual resident of an HOA is encourage your HOA to hire a responsible landscaper. The Town of Vale puts on a um, sustainable landscaping workshop every spring. We typically have 40 to 60 attendees. Um, I think you can be pretty sure that the landscape contractors who take the time to send their staff to that um, training are uh, committed to these best practices. And we have a list of those on the Love Vale website. All right.
3: It would be great if you could make a door hanger that has that, right? Okay. And on one side that it just says, like, these are Pete's top five suggestions, right, that are super stupid simple. And on the other side, it has it in Spanish. And then you can just write your address on the bottom of it, and that way you can you can hand that, hang it on every door every year, and that way it's so easy. It, to say these are our five things that we're going to get done and if it makes a difference, we can talk about it next year. Well, in two years when we get this data. That would be cool. Also, uh, what can we do as a commission that, you know, if you're talking about preventing pesticides, the easiest way to do that is not planting things that require pesticides. So where are we doing that and how can we do less of that?
7: The town itself is doing less and less of that. We're pulling out irrigated turf in a lot of places. Uh, I'd like to see us move further away from annual decorative flowers, but um, there's, a, there's a brand to be, to be managed there as well. I understand that, that some people really value um, you know, lots, lots of annual flowers in some of the high visibility places around town. Um, but we are taking steps towards more perennial more xeric more colorado native landscaping throughout town operations we can also encourage that in new landscaping of new developments Um, eagle river water and sanitation district is encouraging property owners to move away from turf grass they have an incentive in place now for turf grass removal and replacement but it is much much more cost effective to uh, design the landscaping at the outset of a development or redevelopment Uh, not to be centered completely around Kentucky bluegrass or non-native ornamentals that need a lot of water and a lot of chemicals to look good here. Um, I think it's catching on with the public too, this idea of Coloradoscaping around town, Um, but you all may have a role to play in influencing the way that uh, developments occur and the landscaping occurs on some of those developments. We would love to encourage more native vegetation to the extent that that aligns with um, wildfire safety requirements.
3: Do we have any of those protections in place currently, Greg? For? Reducing the amount of turf grass that gets installed in new development.
1: We encourage native landscaping in our code, but it's not required. We don't have any limitations on turf grass or sod at this point. Um, Typically, when we get larger landscaping plans in, we run that by our public works department has a couple landscape architects in there, so we'll ask them to weigh in and give their suggestions on those types of landscaping plans, but there's nothing that we require or limit as far as turf grass.
3: Since we're talking about new regulations for a new zone district, do you think that's something that we could... I know that the housing people left the room already, but...
1: Perfect Is this a in. great
3: spot to not put any new turf grass in would be a question that we could explore in the future? We could really explore
1: it in the future. That I think we'd be more appropriately limiting it in our design guidelines and Title 14 rather than individual zoning districts. So that's more of an encompassing area. Um, so we could potentially look at making some of those changes. I know we're talking about doing some more changes in that title anyway. So potentially that could be an addition to it.
0: And that would fall into the DRP.
1: And that would be done by the DRB. Typically, the PEC does not review landscaping plans as far as details of that level. Um, they're in packets, and you can make comments, but those final plans are done at the design review board level.
3: But we can make recommendations to council for amendment to code Correct. changes yes. that would require that. That yes. would desire so. Right, you can make the changes to the there. code
1: or just the changes to the code, but not individual site plans generally.
3: I would, I'd be very comfortable making a, a recommendation of that. Yep nature should it come in front of us. I don't know if our other commissioners feel the same way.
5: I mean, other municipalities in the county have it. you know, Mm -hmm. gypsum has a per lot maximum sod square footage. So it'd be in line with what's being done elsewhere.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think that's certainly something we're looking at moving forward. I think Eagle River is looking at doing some landscaping changes too, or kind of suggesting some landscaping changes based on water usage. Um, Aspen actually has a very strict and kind of comprehensive landscaping review for any landscaping projects. I don't know that we'll go quite that far, but we certainly want to focus more on less water usage, more native, and kind of with that comes less saw.
3: I'm for it. Good to know. Um, how do you, I'm gonna keep going, how do you feel about mulch? Um,
7: mulch can be an extremely beneficial tool in different respects. Um, can you can you give me a little bit more context for no i don't i
3: can't I, we have a lot of mulch <laughs> okay. in our, our landscaping we have a lot of landscaping area mm-hmm. and, a, and a lot of mulch right yeah. so 95 like percent mulch 2 percent plant hmm. um and so i was just curious if if you had to choose between mulch concrete and turf grass i choose would, the mulch
7: i would probably take mulch over the other two in most circumstances um Stay away from dyed mulch. You know, there's like red dyed mulch and brown dried mulch. mulch. Just plain wood mulch is is better. Mulch can help retain water. um, So it it can help reduce the amount of water you have to put on a landscape. Um, Wood mulch can be a fire hazard if it's too close to the home uh, or to the structure, I should say. Um, Would you
3: put that on your door hanger? Just mulch, Pete's approved mulch? Color, size, whatever.
7: We've got some uh, existing brochures I'd like to share with you that, that might touch on some of this stuff, but they could, um, they could probably use a revisiting. I think they were developed.
3: I do because I looked stuff. up all of these questions before I asked them. Yeah. And I can't find them on the Internet. I'm pretty good at the Internet, too. So. What else? Um, the algae bloom, like, because uh, Chairman Rediker is not here, uh, him and another person brought up this algae bloom in Westvale slash Mountain, so two separate reports of that thing I don't have any other information other than it looks like there's some algae that hasn't been present before I don't know if that's something that you could do anything with I
7: maybe I need to take another look late this summer um, but typically we see a good bit of algae in that part of Gore Creek late in the summer I guess I could look and see if it's a different species from what we've seen in the past or looks like a different species. I don't know my, my algae that well, to be honest with you. Um, algae is fed by nutrients in a lot of cases. Uh, so downstream of the wastewater treatment plant, we are likely to see some increases in algae. It also thrives in warmer areas with more sun exposure. And I think that applies to a lot of areas downstream as well. Um, it might be one more indicator of pollutants, but not something that we can really do a lot about. You know. You, Anything that would get rid of algae, as we saw um, in the Mill Creek spill, um, also has enormous impacts to fish and insects. So I think the other stuff we're trying to do to address pollutants and nutrients in the creek uh, will help control algae. Um, but there's, there's not like something we could sprinkle on the creek to get rid of it safely.
3: I just didn't know if it was a change. I know that our chairman would have brought it up had he been here today. Um, what other thing? There was one other one that I thought was super important that I wanted to bring up, and I can't think of it right now. So if anybody else has a question,
7: I'm always available by, by email or phone call if you have any other questions that don't come up today. So I got. Oh,
3: I I, remember, I remembered, the Autobahn certification for the golf course. What does that mean?
7: Um, I could. Uh, probably find you a link to the website is it Audubon
3: International
7: so it's interesting it's it's not the same as like Audubon birds and things like that I I think it probably is Audubon International Um, it has certain requirements that they use organic fertilizers and fungicides that they have a certain amount uh, or certain percentage of Uh, maintain native habitat uh, mixed in with the golf course um, and that they do some education and outreach to users of the golf course regarding sustainability in general it's not very specific Um, there is a recertification period and I believe that they are either going through recertification now or just have gone through recertification Um, it's probably a question that the Vale rec district could answer better than I can uh, most of what I've been able to glean about that certification has been from the website.
3: All right, because I just I'm I question any kind of certification and it appears that this thing is $1,000 to get certified the first time and 500 bucks a year. And so what what kind of review can a, an agency that's based in Troy, New York be accomplishing with 500 bucks like are they they don't even buy a plane ticket for somebody to come out here and look at that. So. Um, I'm all for meaningful certifications when they have, but I don't like any, I just don't like trotting out the name if it doesn't mean anything. And I don't know what that means. And I I don't know, I think Autobahn and I think birds, but we have the animatronic swans floating around. So I don't get that.
7: Yeah, I've I've received a couple of complaints about the swans. one representative of the golf course board told me that they were aesthetic for the background of the shots at the wedding island yeah um but i
0: have heard other people say some plastic flamingos too yeah
7: well each everyone has their
3: own taste right that's subjective um there are thousands of people that take pictures with those swans and i don't know if anybody realizes that they're not real so i mean we should just we're not going for the disney vibe i don't think Like birds should be real. I don't know if we can make that a rule. Real birds.
7: We used to have real ones. Real swans?
3: Yeah. That's all I got.
7: Thanks for your questions. And thank you all for your time.
0: Thanks a lot, Pete. We'll see you next time.
7: My
3: pleasure.
4: Mr. Chairman, if there's nothing else, I move we adjourn.
0: Do I have a second for adjournment? Second. (laughs) All right. Smith still has some energy, all right. We got a second for Smith, all in favor? Aye. 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 Thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for a good meeting.